0: Hey, this is Ken Art of Wake Up Carolina, because we're in such demand, we decided to do a podcast. Well, actually, it's like an archive of a previously broadcast show on the radio. So it's not a podcast. Well, it is presented as a podcast. So invite people to join us for whatever it is you just said they can join us for. That's right. Enjoy, and it starts now. Good morning, welcome to Wake Up Carolina. It is... Tuesday morning, eight four three, six six one oh nine three seven is our number. Good morning, Royal Rev. Can you speak this morning? I can speak. Okay, we've got Mike in the bank in the big chair this morning, yeah. right?
1: Yeah, yeah. And and so I pulled the I pulled the microphone over so so yes, I can speak. Okay. Good morning. So it's a little different configuration here. But yes, good
0: morning. How you doing? So we are officially in um in under the gun training mode. That's, That's no it. longer a passive um ah, what am I doing? Standard by <laughs> We're not a passerby. Training. Yeah, we're, we're not a passerby any longer. We're live and live in color uh, this morning. Well, um, well, and the life thing, after Cato begins this morning.
1: That's true. Our, and we introduced about this time yesterday. We introduced Mike, our new uh, producer, and and he observed and you know I trained him yesterday by by showing and telling, if you will, here on the control board. And uh, then later after the show yesterday, he said he was ready to try it. So he's there on he the board this morning. I'm on Mike too. In the control room, and you're on mic one, which we have now fixed, in the studio. Good deal. Because you were on mic three. Good deal. All this inside baseball stuff, but, you know, whatever. Um,
0: rock Chalk Jayhawk. I have no idea what that means, but the Kansas Jayhawks come from 16 behind last night to win the basketball happen? national championship. I went to bed at halftime. I thought, well, North Carolina has this. Yeah, Just a really good team. Well. You know, and, and uh, there, there's a reason one's uh, an eight seed and the other's a one seed. The eight seed throughout the ballots of the year— and not performed as well as the one seed. And um congratulations to Kansas. Um I could have cared less. Seriously. I mean, when I watched these yeah. games, uh, I could have cared less. I would have probably rather seen um Coach K's team make it to the final. I mean, there's there's some, I don't know, the storylines of uh the way things should be. But um no skin off my back one way or the other. We're not going to talk much sports today. Because we've got a lot to delve into we're going to offer an opportunity to our listeners that that conservative talk show host listeners excuse me conservative talk listeners hardly ever have an opportunity and that is to provide content for a congressional debate we announced yesterday that we're having a debate um it's official now um wmbf francis marion university and community broadcasters are um collaborating and we've secured a day to venue the candidates. Um, I actually saw a tweet yesterday from one of, the, uh, one of the other candidates that apparently doesn't believe he'll be included in uh, some of the metrics that we have made. Uh, I don't think it was us. I think it was mainly the, the Republican Party. GOP. If I'm not mistaken, the Republican Party um, offered up, I don't know, who's in, who's out. And, um, and via those metrics, one of the candidates um, is, But I guess they perceive themselves to be excluded because they went on somewhat of a tirade comparing um, the Republicans to the Democrats, the elitist. You know, it's all about the money. You got to raise money to be in the game, and kind of kind of insulted. Well, what's really the process
1: interested to me, and I know this is an interesting rate, race, and there's a lot at stake, and it's much more it's intriguing because of the Trump angle and everything. But but ever since we started talking about this and talking to some parties, and word basically leaked out that we were putting together this debate, um, you know, the the outside interest and then these stories started running on these kind of secondary Myrtle Beach websites that were speculating about stuff that wasn't even true, but they were making half of it up and writing stories. Well, we do that. Well, well well but we're it's okay when we do it. <laughs> sure yes. But but what has interested what has interested me is that I guess amount of interest and then why people go that extra step of making
0: up stories and trying to stir up trouble. Thursday, May 5th, at the Performing Arts Center, um, the Florence County Republican Party, community broadcasters, Francis Marion University, and WMBF Television, great television network, um, are all collaborating to host an event. And, um, and there are some metrics, not our metrics, but metrics that belong to the Republican Party that either include or exclude you From participating um, in this debate, Um, I think as a political consumer, you would want to hear from the candidates who have somewhat of a chance to be successful. I mean, I don't, you know, anybody can win at any time. I understand some of that reality, but we believe that there will be four or five candidates that cross the threshold, uh, meet the stated requirements for inclusion, and what I want to do in the next month is try to engage our listeners because I don't know that anybody has ever engaged a universe of, um, you know, where the rubber hits the road listenership and allowing them to provide. Um, and I'm talking about serious questions. I really want to have um, a serious debate about foreign policy and domestic policy and taxes and some of these other things, and I want you guys to help me. I'm the moderator. I mean, I've been chosen to be the moderator, and it's kind of an honor and a privilege for me to be able to do that. But, um, and I've, I've got a way I'll prepare, but I'd love to hear from the listeners. There are a lot more of you than there are of me. So why do I believe I lock myself in a room one day and come up with a, um, you know, a set of questions and not elicit some sort of engagement or response from you, our audience out there. So for the next month or so, um, we're going to randomly ask our listenership to provide us with what you think are very worthwhile and consequential questions, um, understanding that this is a race for the u.s congress this is not a county council race it's not a, a city council race i'm always frustrated when um uh, someone running for the mayor's office of florence or myrtle beach or sumter orangeburg or ask about abortion or, or gay rights or some of these other i mean th- these are not you know those are not local issues those are federal issues where we are you know we are going to host a debate for a federal office so these questions will be most appropriate We need to talk about foreign policy and, uh, I don't know, the culture wars in America, um, taxes, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, the integration of federal and and local and state government. I mean, you know, and and I really want our listeners to be able to provide um, maybe not the exact questions, but what are some of the content that you'd like to see included um, as we prepare for um, this very anticipated debate? um I, I had a question that, yesterday by the way from sure. a
1: listener had sent it to me when you first asked the question um posing the subject of term limits mm-hmm. if you'd ask them if they'd be uh so just file that away um if if it comes up but
0: but are we going to ask questions that we know the answers that will be given i mean are you for term limits or opposed a 90 percent of your voters believe in term limits well, what do you think there, um representative fry congressman ross so they would say they're for it of but course they, they they'd actually never vote well, for I mean, it. Th- 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 and i want to get the questions that you know um, that they'll have to deal with and grapple with. I mean, I get the intent of that. I mean, sure. I mean, I- I'm for term limits. Ninety percent of Republican voters are for term limits. So, if you ask a Republican running for Congress, what is your opinion of term limits? You know what they're going to say? I support them. I want to get into more controversial issues that make you scratch your head. Here's a good question. I mean, I- I'll-, I'll tell you what. I mean, I don't know if this will be the exact um, verbiage of the question, but it'll be one of the questions. Um, How will you, is is it true that there's no way to address the deficit without um, dealing with Medicare, excuse me, yeah, with Medicare and Social Security? Do you agree that there's no way to confront the out-of-control spending without addressing in some way, shape, or form Medicare and Social Security? What's your plan on addressing Medicare? What's your plan on addressing Social Security? That's good. Well, I mean, that's a real question. That that you I mean you got a and a those are real issues. you sure? U.S. Congress people it, it, should be dealing with. It is probably the biggest issue in right? our government: the amount of money we spend that we don't have, and how do we curtail that spending? Well, you and I know. I mean, I think you would know this. Um, the only way to curtail the spending is deal with the entitlements. The biggest driver of entitlements is Medicare and Social Security. And I and I've had a lot of people say they're not entitlements. Ken. yes, they are. That they're categorized as entitlements. I get that you pay in to Social Security. I get that you pay in. To Medicare they're still classified and categorized as entitlements so they are you are entitled to receive the benefit of this government program you're entitled to receive the benefit of this other government program by definition their entitlements let's go to the phone bird Odom Marlboro County morning Bert.
2: good morning Ken uh, question I'd like to see uh, to all the candidates running is uh, do they support the America first agenda and and if you're elected, how does that relate to the 7th District, what you can do to improve life for everybody in the 7th District? And uh, since the national theme, I think uh, particularly for the Republican Party is the America First agenda and continuing what President Trump did for four years and how it relates to the uh, 7th District. The other thing, the less uh, I think people pay attention to that little uh, small vocal group now at O'Ree County and up in Greenville, I think the better off we are, Uh, As a Republican Party, I think their support has diminished over the last year. They started out with a lot of uh, hoopla, but I think a lot of their support has went on. uh, Lynn Wood was a big gun. I think he's deserted them now. So they, uh, you know, like I said, that's a small vocal group in Orwell County. The same group's tied to Greenville County with Jeff Davis. And like I said, I think we are much better as a party if we just forget about that crowd.
0: Thank you, Verd. Appreciate that. Absolutely. America First will be a part of this. You know, um, I, are you an America First Republican or are you a, you know, I have seen this before. Um there are this is kind of an interesting dynamic in Republican politics today. The um the business skeptical conservative. That that's kind of interesting. I'll read you a couple of quotes here. Verd kind of opened that door. Hmm. Um Kevin McCarthy. Well, I'll just read a couple of quotes, and you tell maybe me. Who, maybe you say the, the big business skeptical well, I mean, uh, It's just business. Conservative. Th- th- they're referring well, I don't know what you mean there. They're referring to the orthodox conservative, and I'm talking about those of us who grew up in the Reagan era. You know, the the, the Ronald Reagan doctrine was such a big part of, um, of the realities, and they're now referring to these people as uh, zombie Reaganites. It's as simple as, I mean, you know, how many times can you say um, in other words, tax cuts and deregulation has zombified, you know, the uh, the political class and the Republican Party, um, and now they're talking about business skeptical conservatives, um, anti, excuse me, post corporate conservatives. I mean, there's this. Uh, I I guess it's a um, it's a battle for the heart and soul of the Republican Party. But when you look at some of the things that have been said, I mean, if I said if I told you there's a um, there's an influential politician in Washington who has said before, I didn't even know the chamber was around anymore. Um, there, there's another Republican politician who says, say as, um, woke parallel, excuse me, uh, big business is trying to act like woke parallel government. Marco Rubio of Florida, business profits have become increasingly estranged from production and employment. Jeff Sessions, former Alabama um, Senator and AG for a brief period of time with Trump, um, America's natural interest at heart is flawed and dangerous if we continue to try to allow business leaders to say and and insist that they understand the economy best. J.D. Vance, um, Reaganite, Thatcherite conservatism is the rise of China, the decimation of the American family and lots of tax cuts for the rich. So, um, mm. yeah, there, there's an America first agenda within this um this conservative movement that may or may not be conservative, i have still not decided um, what I believe about its relationship with conservatism, but but they refer to these tax cutters and deregulators as simply um zombie Reaganites. Nobody's going to the Club for Growth expecting to hear some of these um uh, s- some of these interesting and nuanced answers. Uh, the Club for Growth. Uh, I would argue, is um, kind of the representation or manifestation of the zombie Reaganite. And when you say zombie Reaganite, uh, it's basically implying that since the 80s, since we had the Reagan Revolution, uh, you you press a button on a conservative's head and they say tax cuts and deregulation, tax cuts and deregulation. For 30, 40 years, the conservative movement, tax cuts and deregulation, tax cuts and deregulation, tax cuts and deregulation. And the argument is those um we we the the america first movement has this business skepticism that is very conservative in nature and um and well, that's kind did, of a divide what did trump the do that party. we you
1: know most of us were pretty happy about
0: uh, tax cuts and uh, deregulation mm-hmm. yeah i guess who benefited the most from tax cuts and deregulation corporate america some just i know mean, it, uh, some. some yeah uh, you, uh the, the benefactors of tax cuts and deregulation are always corporate America. Now, the argument is the trickle side, you know, the trickle down economics, the supply side economics, and these are economic theories. The, the point that I think Verd is trying to make and the point that I've tried to probably in a lousy sort of way make is um, we have zombified conservatism. I mean, it's much more complicated than tax cuts and deregulation. I'm for tax cuts. I'm for deregulation, but I'm not a globalist. I think the globalist uh, business community have benefited disproportionately off the, the, the you know, the, the zombification of Reagan conservatism because it's all about, you know, are you a tax cutter and a deregulator? Yeah, okay, well, come on in. Uh, are you a tax cutter and a deregulator? Well, it's a little more complicated than that. No, it's not. Stay out there. And that's kind of the way we've um, categorized or characterized recent um Conservative thought leaders. Let's go to the phone. DW in Florence. Hey Don. Good morning.
3: Hey guys. What's up? Got a question for you. Now this is. I'm sure it it won't happen, but I figured I'd ask anyway. Being one of the entitled that I am, you know, I draw my Social Security. I've talked to probably 100, 200, maybe 300 people about being taxed for Social Security. You know, our wonderful President Bill Clinton struck us with tax. Uh, back in the what, 1980s, was it the 80s, 90s? And uh, I want to know who's got the guts to go to Congress and say, look, these people worked all their life for what they have. And you tax them while you don't tax the others. Um, I know that I'll never get asked because uh, people are cowards in that in that place. But it, it's not right. You know, we've worked all our lives. I've been working for 55 years. And uh, I get taxed 22% of my money. They're supposed to give me – they say I'm entitled now. Um, and uh, I just wonder who would have the guts to say that to them. Uh, so that's my idea. I, I just don't know what anybody, if anybody will do it or not. But uh, Taxing people who've worked all their life for the little bit of the money they give them, that, that, that ain't right. Ain't even close to being right. So thank you, guys. Uh, have a good day. Uh, lucky Gamecocks. Go ahead.
0: Thank you, D.W. Appreciate that. <laughs> he almost no. tried to say something nice about the Gamecocks. He almost, yeah, tried. That, that would have been that would have spoiled the fun that right, we have here on right. the show. I mean, D.W. I mean, if I were, and I guess this is the big ideas. I mean, I think the the Republican Party, the America First brand or strain or thread within the Republican Party has to be a party of revelations and big ideas. And I think the biggest idea of all is privatizing Social Security. I mean, I've said that, you know, Social Security has become somewhat of a quasi Ponzi scheme. In other words, the money coming in doesn't go in a lockbox. I mean, it goes to, 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 to fund some of the benefits of money going out. Um, young workers paying for older workers and their um, entitlement to retire, but I do believe some of the um, some of the America First ideas need to be big ideas and and transformative ideas. And I think privatizing Social Security uh, it has to be an evolution. You can't just cut it off right here, Reb, and say that's the way it was. This is the way it is. It would be a progression from one formula or method to another but i think absolutely i mean let's privatize social security I, i've done this before and we'll do it again this one rev gets real aggravated with the fact and reality um let's say said he's worked 55 years so he's contributed a certain percentage of his pay for 55 years they'll give him a certain um hey, they confiscated a sure, certain but amount me, of his pay will give him, they'll give him some of that money back right. if he lives long enough he'll get all of his money back but what if dw had a transferable asset what, what if Don World had, you know, a million dollars? In other words, they take, we got to take a break. Don't want to get too far behind. Stay there, because I think this is a very, very interesting point that needs to be made and is part of the America First agenda. Now, this gets real complicated because people in Washington would have to admit they squandered the money we pay into Social Security. Take a break. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. We've done this a couple of times before. Let's do it one more time. We got a couple of calls, and we'll get there in two seconds. Bear with me real quick. But DW's talking about working 55 years and, you know, the, uh, the You're going to do this again. Well, the reforming Tick of Social Security and what we should do and, and shouldn't do. We're all giddy when we get that. The average Social Security payment in America today is $1,657, somewhere there about. Uh, I've seen it as high 1710 some of the estimates. Uh, most I see is somewhere around $1,650. That is the average Social Security payment made um, to whomever and whenever you decide to collect it. Do you work to your, to your 67 or 70 or 65 or, or 62, depending on when you were born and what age category you fall in, how much money you made? But the average payment today in America is $1,657. The average income in America, household income is seventy grand. It's actually sixty-nine thousand seven hundred ninety-one dollars. If you took the six point two percent of seventy grand, that's forty-three hundred and forty dollars a year. Your employee matches six point two percent, so eight points. Excuse me, twelve point four percent come up to about eighty-six eighty. If you worked thirty years, and it made seven percent interest. Now, the historical average of the S and P is about eight percent, but let's be a little bit conservative: seven percent. That means that you would have about eight hundred twenty-five dollars to $50,000 that you own, a transferable asset. If it makes 8%, you've got a million dollars. I mean, if it does the historic average, the S&P 500, you start working as a 25-year-old, you work until you're 55, that's 30 years. Now, if you want to work until you're 60, 35 years, guess what, Rev? It'd be a $1,510,000. Mm. So when you take, let's just say a million, let's not be greedy, let's say a million bucks. Rev has a million bucks. Instead of waiting on the government to give him 1657 he can say to his financial advisor, hey, send me 4% every year of that money, and that comes up to about $3,333. So you would get about twice as much money, and you would have a transferable asset that you can pass down to your kids, your grandkids, the Clemson Tigers, the South Carolina Gamecocks whomever you choose as your, benefiter or, or your benefactor, um, that's just as crazy we've allowed uh, that to be normalized once again um they confiscate 6.2% of your income your employer most of us don't understand this i do because i've run businesses before you've got to match that with 6.2% so 12.4% makes its way to the coffers of our government on an average household income of 70 grand that means you're sending you and your employer sending 8640 $8680 annually to the government and they've squandered it they've absolutely squandered it so so one of the america first agenda items would be um, a ref a reforming of social security from the government investor model to a private model as somebody under the age of 30 about to start out in a, in a work life they have a right to manage their money as they see fit. I'll even bargain. I'll barter and negotiate, okay? Let's leave the six point two percent mandatory contribution. Let's force the businesses to contribute six point two percent. What What leads to financial independence? Wealth. How many people die uh, depending on that social security payment and a little bit of other pension or retirement or some other um, ways you've probably gotten ahead a little bit in your life. but but imagine a country, where all of its working class had a nest egg of a million dollars, and that's where we would be. Hmm. I mean, that's about where we would if, be if, if they we designed privatized.
1: this program. But it gives
0: up power; it in allows the interest of the to people, be empowered. Not the government. But I mean, it, well, once again, uh, do you d- does the government want you to be empowered, or would they rather you be dependent? I think it's obvious what they
1: you would know rather. The answer to that. They
0: would rather you go to that mailbox or l- keep checking your banking account to make sure the government gave you your money back. I mean, it's categorized as an entitlement. But you're exactly right. It's your money they're giving you back. You could do so much better with a private model that allowed you to have that million dollars or so, you know, um, 827. I mean, let's say it's 827,000. Let's say you only work 30 years and you only make 7%. You still got nearly a million dollars that you can leave to your kids, your grandkids. It creates wealth. And what is the biggest problem with the American working class? Some do fairly well. They make a good salary, but it's hard to generate and create any degree of wealth. Wealth means I don't need the government for much of anything. And the last thing the government in America today wants is for you not to need very much from them, the federal government, because that tilts the scales of power in their favor. Let's go to the phone. Here is Dale in Florence. Good morning, Dale.
4: Morning guys.
5: And there's a lot of good questions to ask. Um, You know, one of mine would be probably, uh, how well are you going to be able to vote or be able to work with President Trump if he gets reelected or his, you know, whoever he's supporting? I'd like to hear Tom Rice's answer on that. But there's a, you know, there's the whole, we, we may be seeing several million migrants head to the border by then because they got rid of, Biden's getting rid of Title 42. Um, I just, I, I guess, um, and, and I'm fully planning on uh, on trying to, to be there, um, I have a – this is hard to, for me to explain. I'm having a hard time understanding what Tom Rice is thinking. Um, you know, you come from a district where President Trump won – I mean, he was just here and had 10,000 people on a cold, rainy day at the airport. I, I I don't know what he's thinking, and, and can I, I I don't know what to ask without coming around right saying, hey, you know, you voted for President Trump's impeachment. What about that? Um, I don't know how, how, how you would phrase a question like that, but um, I do have a hard time wondering what he's thinking. You guys have a good day.
0: Thank you, Dale. But obviously, I think I think Tom Ross owes the public an explanation. So will it come up, Mister Moderator? Course, will it come up I, in absolutely. the debate? it'll have to. But I mean, it, it's the it's the only reason we have a race. I mean, if Rice doesn't do that, we don't have a congressional race in this district. But he did, and we do. And that has to be. That's the elephant in the room. That has to be addressed in a very respectful way. But certainly that will come. I mean, That, that will be a part of the debate, rest assured. Let's go to the phone.
1: Charles in Lamar is next. Hello, Charles.
6: Good morning. Good
7: morning. You, uh, you stole some of my thunder. I was going to say that I've been uh, contributing to Medicare and Social Security since summer of 1969, and had I taken that same money with an employer match and given it to Reggie Armstrong, I'd be making a whole lot more money now than I am from Social Security. I don't like the term entitlement because that's like saying I go out and sell something and uh, the commission I get is entitlement because I'm entitled to it since I, I, I sold it but I understand your, your, your uh, thinking on that. The government took our Social Security money and put it into, to use Al Gore's term, a lockbox for us to have for retirement and Medicare, and then they add, took all that money out and spent it. So the issues that we have now, as, as DW mentioned, are not only... I'm being taxed on that money, but that money is having to come out of the budget every year because they've squandered what they had. So um, there are advantages in Social Security. You know, I I started drawing Medicare at, at 65 and Social Security at 66, but uh, it's it's way less than it would have been had I just done my – my own investments and yes I'm entitled to it but I do not look at it as an entitlement you all have a great day
0: thank you Charles and most people feel that way the reason I called it entitlement is cause in government outlays it's referred to as part of the entitlement programs I mean I think you got to talk the lingo Charles is exactly right nobody's giving you anything I mean you the, the government decided to take a certain percentage of your money for a long period of time, and now they're going to give you some of that back. Um, they're not giving you your money back because they've already spent your money. They're giving you the um, the money that a 25-year-old pays in to the system. It's a, it's a con game, guys. I mean, it really is. It's a con game perpetrated against the American public. And when you die, I mean, let, let's say Charles. Charles, for the example, I mean, he said he's on since 1969. So since 1969, um, a certain percentage, and now that would be 6.2%, of the money Charles earns goes to the government. The employer or whomever Charles is working for, whether it's himself or somebody else, 6.2% of that is matched. So um, 6.2% of the profit and proceeds of the business, 6.2% of those who provide the labor necessary to make widgets or do radio shows or run university athletic departments, whatever it is, I mean, whatever your walk of life may be. I mean, you don't get all of your money. you get 6.2 percent is that 6.2 percent of that is um, is delegated to do this. And I mean I can get intra government debt and what percentage of our debt is intra-government debt. They're moving money around. It's kind of a shell game and a Ponzi scheme to be honest with you. but, but the one thing the, the biggest argument I think to make in the name of privatizing social security is not whether you get 1650 or 3300 a month. I mean, obviously, you'd rather get the 3300 than you had the 1600 Why? Because folks from Pamplico, that's about twice as much. But it's the fact that you would have a million dollars or a million and a half dollars or maybe even $2 million to pass on to family members or do with whatever you choose to do with it. You know, like I said, you can give it to the, to the Gamecock Athletic Department, the Clemson Athletic Department. That's what you, you know, desire to do. But, but you're empowered. And I think, yeah, I mean, you know, the, we, we have a wealth creation problem in America today. The middle class, um, at, their, at their passing, they normally don't have a lot of wealth. I mean, you may have a pension. What happens to the pension at your death? It normally ceases to exist. Um, Social Security, you can pass on the benefit to a spouse and all these other sorts of things. But they've convinced you they're they're looking after you. By sending you that 1657 man, the government decided to get me a, a 2.5% increase in my Social Security benefit. Wow, aren't they kind and you're gracious. happy to get it, too. Sure you are. Well, that's the mindset <laughs> of the normal American today. Right. We've been con- conditioned to conform. We've been hoodwinked into believing that you know, they're giving you a certain percentage of your money back. But if you were empowered and if you were able to make some of these financial decisions on your own, and the next thing you know, Rev goes, can I retire or not? No, I can't retire because I need more than $1,647 a month. But if Rev knows he has a million dollars in his name that he controls, that he has autonomy over and power and control over, that's an entirely different animal. But you know what happens then? People don't need the government as much. And that's actual Social Security. Sure. Peace of mind. you, you quite no, And building wealth, accumulating wealth. You work all of your life to do what? To do better, to get paid and keep your money. I mean, if you, asked 90, if you asked 100 Americans, 99, that would be one oddball, but 99 would say, if you said, hey, would you rather not keep all your money or keep all of your money? 99% would say, I'd rather keep all of my money. Okay, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to give you all of your money, but, but we don't fully trust you. So 6.2% of this money of yours has to go into some sort of retirement account. It's your retirement account the government will not touch it it's yours and your employer via some government mandate is also going to have to contribute 6.2% you got 12.4% now now i would probably i mean i'm doing this to be a bit um negotiable i mean i would probably insist the employer not have to match it at all let the employer give you your money you know why the employer can't pay you more than he's paying you now cuz he's got some of these matches he's got some of these costs of of doing business so so yeah i mean you know deregulation by 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 essence allows employers to pay employees a higher rate of compensation. I mean, I know that to be true because I was in manufacturing and I know um, the, the the price of regulation is not taking out the price of a truck bed. You know what it's taking out the price of? Normally your labor. I mean, that's where you got to make up some of this. So instead of paying somebody $22 an hour, you're paying them $19 an hour. Why? Because regulation costs you about three bucks an hour on each employee. I mean, I'm not saying that's the number, but there's a rule of thumb that is applied across the board. Let's go to the phone, then we'll take a break.
1: Our next caller is Larry in the PD. Hello, Larry.
0: Hey, how y'all doing? Hey, Larry. Hey, you know, I think the government missed
8: a window and I, I think it may be unfixable at this point, but you could have taken Social Security away from Generation X. We didn't believe it was ever coming in the first place. Problem is now, we're, well, we've paid him for you know, 20, 25 years and we're feeling like we're entitled, right? But if you would have told us when we were 18, 19, 20 years old, hey, we're going to phase this brand of Social Security out, our generation would have went for it. We were also the smallest generation that we've had in a while, and it would have been the best time to do it because we wouldn't need that much money in the first place. But now, with these millennials and Generation Z, you'll never take an entitlement away from them. They have been programmed to live for the government. So we can talk about this to the cows come home. There's no way there's a political will in this country to change it now. We're screwed.
0: Thank you, Larry. Appreciate those words of encouragement this, this morning. But, <laughs> but exactly, he's exactly right. But there was a time, and it was about the time Bush tried some of this. Yep. I mean, you know, I, I beat up on Bush with the Bush doctrine of globalism and interventionism and all these other sorts of things. But the George W. Bush um, administration tried to go down the road of privatizing Social Security. And I've never read that they believed what Larry said. I think Larry's right about you know th- there was a point in time when it would have been far more appealing to a universe of voters and constituencies and – and, um, you know, they didn't believe it was going to be there anyway. I didn't believe it was going to be there. Now I do. You know why? Because I just think they'll keep printing money. I mean, I you know, is there a number out there? Are we living in the world of modern monetary theory? Apparently we are. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think he's right about the, the following generations that the government benefit. I'll stop calling it an entitlement. the government benefit is, um, I mean, it's bulletproof. It's got to be there. I mean, you can't expect the government not to take care of you. That's what they do. Take a break. Back in a minute. In the 2004 State of the Union address, President George W. Bush said, and I quote, younger workers should have the opportunity to build a nest egg by saving part of their Social Security taxes in a personal retirement account. We, We should make the Social Security system a source of ownership for the American people. He goes on to the campaign speech about a month or so after giving the State of the Union when he says, as we fix Social Security, We also have the responsibility to make the system a better deal for young workers. And the best way to reach that goal is through voluntary personal retirement accounts. Um, This is a better deal. The rate of return would be higher than in the traditional system. The accumulation could be passed on to children and grandchildren. And best of all, the money in this account is yours. And the government can Hmm. never take it away. That is President George W. Bush in 2000. What I remember
1: about that was the
0: Democrats screaming. Oh, they did. That. Well, I mean, the Republicans were kind of in disarray. They were discombobulated. They weren't all singing off the same sheet of music. They were too busy on tax cuts and deregulation. Tax cuts and deregulation. <laughs> it's like Rain What's Man. Wrong with that? Charlie Babbitt made a joke. <laughs> Charlie Babbitt made a joke. Are you a Republican? Yeah, I'm a tax cutter and a deregulator. No, you're a Republican. I'm a tax cutter and a deregulator. I mean, we have been zombified in some sort of weird way. Let's go to the phone. Here's Joe in Hartsville. Good morning, Joe.
9: Yeah, good morning, guys. You know, all these people up there think all of our money is theirs and they just give us back what they want us to have. But as far as social security goes, if you think about it, you're actually taxed on what you save three times versus the tax that you put in all right, and then they they take the money and put it in those special T bills. They say about well, what is that special T bill? That's a government debt. We pay our normal taxes to pay off a government debt, and then when you retire, when they set it up in the, the early eighties, they taxed up to fifty percent of your Social Security if you made over twenty five thousand dollars. Well at the, at the time less than one percent of the people were taxed on their Social Security and that that was their big thing. Oh, only a few people agreed. Well, when Al Gore and, and our buddy Clinton raised it up to 85 percent in 94 to 85 percent, they never indexed it for inflation. So that's one of the reasons they got their butt handed to them In the 94 election and Newt Gingrich and the gang took over the house but if the government wanted you to have that money when they created your social security number they would have also created a bank account to put that into just like you're talking a private account well they didn't they, they did the one but they didn't do the other so you remember when Obama every time they'd have a shutdown or a threat of a shutdown, oh social security chase won't go out? Well those people are dead serious. They will they will do that. And there's precedent from the Supreme Court has already told you that nineteen fifty five or sometime, that really Social Security is a insurance program, it's not an entitlement. So People better wake up and uh, think about who they're voting for, because we've got a lot of, a lot in our own uh, side of the aisle that, that are destroying this country. You got three Republicans going to vote for this radical. We got to take a Joe, we got to take a
0: break, Joe. Hard break. Top of the hour. We'll be back in just a second. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. Tuesday morning, professors will be here in about an hour or so and we'll um we'll kind of delve into the um the Ukraine Russia situation couple of other issues i want to make sure we discuss and talk about so i was thinking
1: about the ukraine situation a little bit yesterday after the show and those heart-wrenching pictures that we talked about look like uh, you know the bodies that were left by russian soldiers um, i read a little bit about I guess asking the question is if that was possibly a false flag. I mean, you know, there's all kinds of uh, the fog of war and all that. But if you think about it, I mean, do you think you have to give any consideration to some of that could have been staged? I'm not saying it was because they were just awful images to look at.
0: I think you've got to get you've got to give consideration to everything. I mean, I don't think anything's off the table when it comes to the fog of war and what we know and what we don't know. The one thing we know is there are a lot of things we don't know. I mean, I think if we go into this um in, in endeavor uh, militarily, politically, um, uh, geopolitics is a big part of this. I think to go into this, assuming that you know exactly what happened, and I mean, I, I just said yesterday the emotions of what you see. I mean, if you give into the emotions of the moment, then you'll 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 you know forget the no fly zone. I mean, let's go bomb Moscow, but well, the emotions say that. But you got to be real guarded about allowing your emotions. Um, to get the best of you. And and once again, Kaufman and Bolt are history professors. Kaufman has kind of a subspecialty in world history. Um, So I kind of want to go down the road of um, what did we have to do with installing a government in Ukraine? I mean, I want to make sure we have with clarity from a historical context and an academic understanding. um, I, I just don't believe we're blameless in any of this, Rev. I'm sorry. I mean, that make me a, a Putin apologist by any stretch of the imagination. I just don't believe that that America's blameless in all of this. Um, We've put the Western world at Putin's doorsteps. Putin's not the kind of guy that's going to take very kindly to that. Um, what what if Putin installed a Russian military base in Mexico? I mean, what would our response be? I, I just I think you got to be real I mean, careful think about, about the
1: Bay of Pigs. Well, I, mean, in we're, Cuba, we're,
0: I guess the point out, we, we like we History. like to categorize or characterize things. Uh, White hat, black hat, good guy, bad guy. Um, Some of these things are not that simple. They're much more complicated um, than that. Uh, Let's go back to Social Security and Medicare for just a second, because I think it plays into the term limit argument we're trying to have. If we had term limits, wouldn't it be easier for political candidates or those aspiring to be politicians to say certain things about Medicare and Social Security uh, the, the, the insolvency factor, Social Security. Most accounting says by 2034, that account will be, and I'm talking about the Social Security Trust Fund, will be insolvent. I mean, there won't be anybody. And, and by that, I mean there will be um, – I mean, we're drawing down the reserves now as we speak. Um, decreasing number of workers, increasing number of beneficiaries. That is going to lead to a, a problem down the road um at some point in time there will be more pulling and pushing the wagon excuse me riding the wagon than there are pushing and pulling the wagon i'm certainly not arguing that people receiving a social security benefit are riding in the wagon i mean you're the guys and ladies who have pushed and pulled the wagon to a point of getting a chance to ride the wagon for just a bit toward the end of our work life but there's no question that by most accounts say by 2034 which is what 12 years from now um the social security administration will run out of the excess reserves it has and will able it will it will eventually be able to only pay a percentage of a retiree's full benefits there there are a myriad of ranges or a myriad of uh, models out there that say somewhere between 72 and 84 percent um this means that retirees will eventually get reduced monthly benefits or even fewer checks i mean i've seen where you know, you don't get a check every month. You get a quarterly um, check, and it equals about 78% of what you would have received had you got, um, you know, the, 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 the amount you were promised. So we know fundamentally we have problems here. And, um, and you know, when you say what are you going to do to address the entitlements, um, I've got to figure out a way to ask a very serious question about Social Security and Medicare and and not get a political answer. So the political answer will be, and it has historically been, um, I'm not. Go- I'm going to do everything I can to protect your Social Security and Medicare. If the American people knew what Social Security really was, you know what they would say? I don't want you to protect my Social Security. I want you to do what George W. Bush tried my to do money. in 2004. <laughs> you know, when I've read a lot about this, because I've tried to really come up with a better way to do this, I've actually put myself in the shoes of a candidate. I mean, if I were running for office. As an America first candidate, I think one of the most America first issues would be um, allowing you to have access to your personal uh, retirement account. In other words, is his six point because Bush nipped around the edges. I mean, traditional Washington fashion, if I'm not mistaken, he wanted one third of the six point two percent to go in a private account, not to exceed a thousand dollars a quarter. I had my thousand dollars a year. I'm sorry, a thousand dollars a year. So he, he was baby-stepping into reforming Social Security. He couldn't even get that done. And then I went back during the break and read some of the Democrat talking points. It was, you know, there's going to be winners and losers. I mean, imagine that. Even back in the good old 2004s, you know, the Democrats were opposed to winners and losers. You're going to have some people who make smart decisions and invest the money wisely. You'll have others that don't. That um, And I'm not, I'm not bothered. I mean, it, it's probably not. I mean the, the the libertarian in me says no, but the realist in me—I um, would say intellectual realism—but uh, I don't have the intellectual uh, to to call myself an intellectual realist a realist. But but the reality is, and the point I'm trying to make is, um, I will accept that we can't go wild wild west. I'll accept that um, that Mike and Dave and Ken can't have full autonomy to their funds because some people just aren't disciplined enough, and it does create calamity. In the in the public domain, and, and and you know we've got people making irresponsible investments, and we got. I mean, I, I understand that that's the nature of capitalism. I get that. I said philosophically, I'm not opposed to that. But I think when, when you try to change a government program, you've got to incrementally do it. So I would be supportive of um a modicum of government oversight. Let's let's argue. I mean, I would have done more than Bush, but but let's let's argue for argument's sake. Let's say the six point two percent that we now pay to the government goes to Reggie Armstrong. And Reggie takes that six point two percent. And the government says, Reggie, you can't buy stock in Tesla or SpaceX. You can buy stock. We got some um some A rated um investment bonds. We've got some corporate bonds here that are A rated uh Microsoft or Apple or somebody who's well healed and is not a risky investment. All investment comes with some degree of risk. Aren't we finding that out with Social Security? I mean, aren't we finding out about the, the potential insolvency issues of social security? Now, the one thing that Intel doesn't have the ability to do that the government does is print money. I mean, there's always that, um, that, that, that you know, gap stop or, or, or safety blanket out there that says, yeah, but if Intel blows up and Dave Baker's got all of his money invested, in Intel, Apple, and, and Microsoft, and they go belly up, he loses his money. If the government goes belly up, guess what do we do? We just wait on the Fed to print another, you know, tranche of funds. So, so yeah, I mean I get that, but but can we do that forever? Because the argument you're making is um, you know the government's not a risky investment. Therefore you're always going to have that predicted rate of return. You're always going to get that 1657 dollar check. I just argue that's not the case. I mean, I think it's um, I think the government's probably a riskier investment than investing in um, a company in the private sector. but but you know, take my take my philosophy out of the equation. I would be willing. I would be willing to go down the road of compromising and saying, "Okay, the government lists a um, a set of sectors that we can invest in or not." And out of that comes, you know, a hundred companies or two hundred companies that you cannot invest in. Uh, they're they're too risky. They, they are they're cutting edge. They're they're swinging for the fence kind of investments, and um, and we can't risk. Yeah, we can't replace a government-run retirement plan on allowing people to invest in the latest, greatest, next uh, widget. Okay, fair enough. But let's at least privatize it. And let's allow the general public to have access to money that they own. It's their money. They don't have to wait on the – I mean, imagine this, guys. I mean, I'll go back to Don World. I mean, imagine somebody works 50 years, and at the end of that 50-year work life, they're 70 years old. They start working when they're 20. At 70 years old, um, they go to the mailbox and wait on the government to give them a check. I mean, isn't that kind of demeaning? I mean, in all honesty, for 50 years, you work, and you do what you're supposed to do. And, 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 you know, you don't know that 6.2 percent—I mean, I'll be honest, the first 10 years of my life, I didn't understand 6.2 percent of the 1.25, you know, Medicare match. I had no clue. I just knew that I was supposed to make this much, and I was only, as we say in the country, I was only taking home that much. And you just kind of say, well, that's just the government. I mean, I don't understand Medicare, and I don't understand Social Security. I certainly didn't understand an employer match until I become, you know, a proprietor of a business. And I'm responsible for making that match and dealing with workers' comp and all these other other sorts of things. I just believe that, that one of the fundamental issues one of the fundamental problems in America today is the working class not having wealth. And I think wealth breeds independence, it, it breeds empowerment. And I think if Dave Baker knew, and I don't know Rez's financial situation, don't need to know it, but if Dave Baker knew that in another 10 years there was going to be a million dollar retirement account with his name on it, no strings attached, is his money? He would be a lot more productive soul. He would be a lot more optimistic about the future. But now Dave Baker has been conditioned to believe that that sixteen hundred and fifty-seven dollars a month the government is about to give him um, may or may not be there. Is it is it Rev's fault that he's concerned about whether the sixteen fifty-seven is going to be there or not? Of course not. It's the irresponsibility of the government. I mean, is this their their lack of discipline, their lack of restraint, their lack of self-control, their inability? to properly manage Rev's funds, my funds, Mike's funds, all of all of your funds. And, and and while we don't insist or demand something fundamentally different than that be the model moving forward is beyond me, but we don't. You know, we keep voting for politicians who say, send me to Washington and I'll protect your Social Security. Send me to Washington and I'll make sure they don't monkey around with your Medicare. Now, Medicare is a different animal. Medicare, Medicare is probably the biggest driver the deficit because uh the escalation in healthcare cost. Um they've done a good job of not they've done a good job of not attaching or connecting um, social security to a true rate of inflation. You know how we talk a lot rev about the uh, the manipulation of the inflation numbers mm-hmm. well a lot of this is because the government's in such debt they need interest rates to stay low and they, they owe a lot of money. So if they owe a lot of money and they don't have to pay a premium interest rate They're more inclined to say, well, we can make these numbers work for a bit longer or or much longer. But but I just believe that, um, and I think Larry hit it. I think there was a point in time that you could have looked a generation, and everybody wouldn't have signed up, and everybody wouldn't have agreed, but we're in America. You know, 51 per 50% plus one beat the other side. 51 votes in Congress um, are going to beat 49 every single time. And I just believe there was a chance, and maybe that chance is rearing its head again with this America First agenda. I mean, maybe we are. um, Maybe the zombie Reaganites that we discussed early this morning, maybe the zombie Reaganites will give way to some of this um, creative thought and this new wave of conservatism that is not as trusting of the status quo, not as trusting. I mean, it's got to be more than deregulation and and cut taxes. I mean, would we agree to that? I mean, let's argue for argument's sake. Let's say that deregulation and cutting taxes are important. But is it more important than privatizing Social Security? Is it more important than um, you know being serious about where we intervene or not? And, and I think the article I read, it's a Bloomberg article, and it is very interesting because when you read some of these comments, they sound like those of liberal Democrats. I mean, it really does. It sounds like something Bernie Sanders would say. Um, big business is like a woke parallel government. Business profits have become increasingly estranged from production and employment. Business leaders under understanding the economy best and having America's national interests at heart is flawed and dangerous. The Reaganite, Thatcherite conservatism is indeed the rise of China, the decimation of the American family, and lots of tax cuts for the rich. I mean, does that sound like conservatives? No, I mean that you know because conservatism has been dominated by these uh, these zombie Reaganites who, at every turn, on every answer, say, "Well, I mean, uh, we don't have enough tax cuts. We've not deregulated enough." And I just think we've got to engage in a in another sort of conversation about some of the issues that the American working class is facing and having to deal with. And and I think it is a time for what we'll call post corporate conservatism. And I think business-skeptical conservatism is a path forward. I think it's something we should engage in. Um, if the Republican Party decides to be hostile to globalization, uh, to some of the immigration policies of the American political left, um, because I do believe they have damaged, and probably uh, if you look at the the wages of the working class in America and the stagnant nature of which they existed for such a long period of time, uh, yeah, I mean, I absolutely, I think America first— could be hostile to globalization and some of the immigration policies. Do do we believe the Reaganite zombies really enforced um, immigration policy in America? I mean, I would argue that we had a big agreement on immigration in America. It was don't secure the border. Why not secure the border? Because it provides cheap labor. Why do we want cheap labor? Because corporations give us a lot of money. And if corporations have an abundance of cheap labor, the supply and demand factor. I mean that you know so yeah, I mean I think Republicans and Democrats in power have had a uh, a steadfast agreement on immigration. Let's don't enforce it. Now now once again, what have I said about, you know, if these people immigrating into America were trying to go to the prestigious law schools or running for Congress or, or high flying financiers, there would be a wall sky so a Spider Man <laughs> couldn't scale. How tall would that wall as be? As high as the damn sky. <laughs> I mean that's exactly how high the wall would be. Precisely how high the wall would be. If the number of unskilled laborers were making their way into America not to compete with with, with truck drivers or construction workers or, you know, the blue collar labor, which I believe is so essential and important and indeed help make America great. If those immigrants were coming here with aspirations of, um, of going to our prestigious Ivy League universities or living in the Hamptons or enjoy some of the fruits and labors of insiderism or running for Congress or financiers. Yeah, I mean, there, there is no way. You couldn't, I mean, you couldn't distinguish the sky. You could not see the top of the wall. <laughs> it would be so high. <laughs> but that's not the case. It's here to, um, to do what, Rev? I mean, th- these immigrants are coming to do what? Some of the menial tasks. Some of the sweat of the brow work that has been so dishonored in the American corporate culture. So, I mean, yeah, I, I'd like to see this party. And I guess, Rev, hosting or moderating a debate between congressional candidates in, in the Republican Party, I've got to figure out a way to find out. Uh, I mean, if I ask you if you're an America Firster, you're going to look at the polls and say, yeah, of course I am. I'm an America Firster. Why are you an America Firster? Well, I mean, three-quarters of my party. You know, I've got to bolt into this America First ideology or philosophy or, or governing philosophy. And, um, but I want to understand, what about you? I mean, what does America First mean to you? What sort of policies do we enact? What, what sort of risk do we take to advance an America First agenda? And I think the most important issue is empowerment. And how do we get empowerment? Well, financial liberties and flexibility and independence. And I think the way you do that, how much better would you listening to my voice wake up this morning if you knew at the end of your work life was not a $1,657 a month payment, but rather a million dollars in your name that you earned? Damn it, nobody gave you anything. You made it, you earned it, it's yours. But now you're waiting on the government to dole back to you that 6.2% they took from you all of your work life. The person you worked for had to build at a price on his widget or whatever, plate of food, whatever it is, doesn't matter. He's got to account for that 6.2% match. So the government's not giving you, an, it is an entitlement. And maybe Charles is right. Maybe I should stop calling it an entitlement. But historically, it's been categorized in inlays and outlays as an entitlement. Are we, going to, are we going to tweak the entitlement programs in America or not? I say we don't tweak some of these things. See, I believe this. I believe fundamentally that the only way to save this country's uh, form of government is radical and, and, and transformational change. I just don't think we can tweak around the edge. Got to be careful there, Ken. Got to be careful not to do too much too quick. You'll freak people out, you'll spook people. People won't go for much of that. I think it's the only hope we've got. Whether it's education, whether it's taxes, whether it's Social Security, whether it's health care in America, I think we've allowed ourselves to get to a place where the only saving grace, the only way to try and make it better and salvageable is to radically change some of these things that people in Washington just have simply not wanted to change because it's political risk. And um, anything with a political risk associated they would rather not do it, in the name of the next election. Take a break, back in a minute. 843 The last 30 years have not been, excuse me, may have been good for the third or so people who graduated from universities and worked for global corporations, been much less good for the two-thirds who have seen income stagnant and their jobs become more unforgiving. That's from an article in Bloomberg Opinion, And it really feeds into this narrative about America first. You know, it's interesting. Verd is very active in the Republican Party around here with Dillon County, which is in uh, our neck of the woods, so to speak. And uh, every time you speak to a Republican aficionado, it's all about this diversion, excuse me, this division within the party, Um, the America first element within or the, um, you know, the traditional orthodox. Intellectual conservative, and um, and uh, you know, I, once again, I, I, I looked at it kind of like a kind of like a seesaw. There's a heavy man and, and a man not so heavy. The heavy man on this seesaw is indeed um, the America firsters. I want to shift gears and and go to something because I think this is interesting. Rev, uh, Larry Hogan, governor of Maryland, was on CNN Sunday, and Hogan um, basically chastised uh, Ron DeSantis for the way of which he was going about you know, dealing with Disney and Hogan. I mean, basically, Hogan would be one of these Reaganites, one of these zombie Reaganites (laughs) and said, um, if we're not talking about deregulation and tax cut, I don't know what to say. Because historically, that's the way we've argued about every point. Um, Deregulation, tax cut, deregulation, tax cut. Um, J.D. Vance said um, a year ago, you know, what are we going to do if we do get in charge of government? Are we going to um, fundamentally oppose some of these? Um, in other words, are we going to make ourselves a little bit hypocritical by agreeing that we want government to be limited, its sway to be very limited, its influence to be very limited? But if we get in charge, are we going to advance agendas and, and items that we believe are important? And um, and that's just kind of where it, Will Hogan once again, governor of Maryland, and some people believe should run for president. I can't, in a million years, imagine the Republican base today electing somebody as um ah as common and by that establishment. I, I mean, it's just totally established and um and really a little bit insulting. And now you know, well, I don't. I mean, I know DeSantis does what DeSantis does, and I, I think DeSantis stylistically. Has it figured out? I mean, I think this is where the party needs to stand. It needs to be confrontational. It needs to be argumentative. It needs to be in your face. And I'll tell you what. And that
1: offends the Larry Hogan's of the world, apparently. Yeah,
0: Hogan would just rather, you know, everybody acquiesce into deregulation and tax cuts. I mean, let's give corporations tax cuts and let's deregulate the economy and let's let wealthy people get wealthier and hope and anticipation of them passing along some of the spoils of their victories to the commoners. I mean, that's kind of the, I mean, that, that would be the, I mean, I hate to say this, guys, but that's kind of the model of trickle-down economics. And most Republicans bought into that. I mean, many Republicans still believe in trickle-down economics. I mean, I believe in deregulation. I believe in lower taxes. But I believe in empowering the American working class. So So, you know, what am I thinking about? What am I talking about? What am I in support of? It would be issue items that empower the American working class. Um, and I think the Bush tax cuts, I said it then, I'll say it again now. I think they were too heavily weighted toward corporate income. I think corporations made out like bandits will corporations lobby the federal government. You know, when you go back and look at some of the founders' pronouncements and some of their early stances and, and what they stood for, they were not fond of corporations. I mean, they didn't say, we, eventually there will be these huge corporations and we want you to oppose these huge corporations when they become so intertwined in your government. They didn't say it that way. But they, they basically insinuated that political power should belong to the people. And once political power ceases to belong to the people, it needs to be revisited, that there needs to be a recalibrating of where political power and influence lie. And, um, and I think we've gotten to a point. Now, Disney would be a good example. And here's what Hogan's arguing. Hogan is arguing that the true conservative would let Disney do whatever Disney chooses to do because it's not your job. You're a deregulator. You're a test cutter, Right. I mean, isn't that what we're taught? We deregulate. We tax. We cut taxes. We don't monkey around with private enterprise. I mean, we let them do whatever they choose to do. Well, I mean, once again, let's go to some of the um, some of the statements that recent Republicans have made public. Um, Kevin McCarthy, Marco Rubio, uh, even old Mitch McConnell. Even old, old boy Mitch from Kentucky. I mean, even he gets a little bit old Mitch, but because he says that critics, I mean, he criticizes big government, or excuse me, big business for trying to act like a woke parallel government. So all of these guys understand the politics of the moment. They, they are well aware of, of where the, uh, the base lies and what the base considers to be its priority. But I went back and looked at all of the language in this bill. Now it's been somewhat accurately described. Um, the, the don't-say-gay bill does not include the word gay. But the entire controversy hinges on this single sentence. You ready? I mean, this is from the bill. This is not Politico. This is not The Hill. This is not conservative talk radio. This is the language in the bill. Classroom instruction by school personnel or third parties on sexual orientation or gender identity may not occur in kindergarten in kindergarten through grade through, or in a manner that is not age appropriate or developmentally appropriate for students, in accordance uh, accordance with state standards. Now, now, when you look at Democrats in in Florida, 55 percent support the bill. When you give the language of the bill, once again, that is the language of the bill. Forget what Larry Hogan says. Forget what even forget what Ron DeSantis says. Take the try to take the um. the the political hyperbole out of the equation for just a second. The bill reads, just as I read it, that classroom instruction by school personnel or third parties on sexual orientation or gender identity. It's interesting that we've got to demand this of school districts anyway. I mean, it's bizarre that schools would allow consideration of, of sexual orientation or gender identity to be normalized but we've got to, we've got to issue legislation for kindergartners. Well, I mean, this is preventative measures. I mean, this is what it is. This is a a proactive bill. Um, Some will say, well, none of this is happening. Of course it's happening. It's absolutely happening in some of these liberal um, academic settings, but classroom instruction by school personnel or third parties on sexual orientation or gender identity may not occur in kindergarten through grade three or in a manner that is not age appropriate or developmentally appropriate for students in accordance with state standards. Where's the controversy? I mean, what is controversial about this? Does Disney really believe that kids between uh, kindergarten and the third grade need to be having conversations with teachers or, or guidance counselors about gender fluidity or gender identity? Really? I mean, is that where we are in America? Because Disney basically says you know that they oppose this because it. I mean, it doesn't do anything. This bill doesn't do anything. You know what it does? It stops the nonsense. It disallows any teacher who may be uh, a five-star liberal and wants to uh, engage with, with a kid from kindergarten to grade three. How kid? How old are kids in kindergarten? Five, six. Yeah. Okay, from yeah. six to nine year old. So when a kid six to nine goes to class. The last thing he should even be concerned with, and the last thing the parent of that kid should be concerned with, is there may be a conversation on the record in an official capacity of a, or with a teacher about gender identity. DeSantis says, that's insane. That's absurd. He wants to stop that. And Disney says, how dare you? stop kids between the ages of five eight or nine from having conversations with their teachers or guidance counselors about gender identity is that really the hill that disney wants to down i mean disney can down a lot of hills they've got a lot of resources That they've got a lot of abilities I mean Disney can really put up a fight for a long 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 time Um, and I've already heard I'm no I'm never going to Disney again I'll never spend another dollar at Disney again I've heard that from about 10 or 12 people someone in the investment world says they've had three different clients call them and says liquidate my investments in Disney you know I don't want to be a part of that but but historically that's not worked and DeSantis knows that's not going to work so DeSantis proactively uh, institutes language in a bill that, that says we're going to stop this nonsense. I don't give a damn what Disney says. We're in Florida, we're not going to have teachers talking to five, six, seven, and eight year olds about gender identity. Guess what DeSantis also has? He has Democrats in his corner. Because when you ask that specific question, the question from the bill, forget what CNN says. Forget what Disney's and their lawyers say. When CNN or MSNBC or Fox for that matter when they, when they fan the flames of sensationalism, they're trying to provoke division. They're trying to create controversy. But when you read the language of the bill, that sentence that I think um, the, the entire controversy hinges upon, when you read that sentence and you go to public opinion polls and you ask the citizens in Florida, 55% of Democrats support what DeSantis is doing. Now, you can't say, hey, are you a Democrat? Yeah. Do you support Ron DeSantis? No, no. All right, well, let me tell you what he's doing. I don't care. doesn't matter what he's doing. They, they don't associate the language of the bill with Ron DeSantis. They just read the Senate 55 to 29%. 29% opposed, 59% of Democrats, 58% of independents, 67% uh, among parents support this. The, the bizarre nature to me is why? why are these numbers not 90%? I mean, it should be ninety percent of Democrats, ninety percent of Independents, ninety percent of parents. Where's the sanity in believing it makes any sense to talk about gender identity in a schoolroom with five, six, seven, and eight year olds? I mean, is that really is that really where we are in America today? Well, apparently it is. Once again, when you when you poll Independents, when you poll Democrats, the number's still less than sixty. I mean, it's overwhelmingly in support of the Senate, but it's still less than 60%. That means one of every three Democrats in America today believe it's very appropriate for a teacher or guidance counselor in an academic setting, that being a school, to talk about gender identity. What sort of conversations should we have with five, six, seven, and eight-year-olds about gender identity? I mean, I'd love for somebody who disagrees with what DeSantis is doing to call in and say, well, I mean, this would be a logical conversation to have with a six-year-old about gender identity. There is no logical conversation to have with a six-year-old about gender identity. If, if a kid gets to be 12 or 13 or 14 and they're goofed up and confused and don't know if they're coming to go, okay, let, let's engage at some point in time. I think that's still too young. I mean, you know, what is the magic age of which we could talk about gender identity? Well, I think the subject is asinine. I mean, I think the, the notion or idea of gender fluidity or gender identity is absurd. On its face, I don't think there should be any conversations outside of adult settings where we're even talking about gender identity or gender fluidity, but we are. And, and Disney's taking um, taken DeSantis to task, and Disney has a lot of resources. Now, now DeSantis tends to be argumentative, tends to, tends to be very direct and blunt, and he's not afraid of a good fight, but think about Larry Hogan. I mean, if Disney were in Maryland, you know what Larry Hogan has said? Let like Larry Hogan has said, we won't have this debate. You know, we, we just won't have a conversation about, you know, because once again, Rev, if we're not deregulating and we're not cutting taxes, we're not going to all tell government, or excuse me, big business, what they can and cannot do. Fundamentally, are we comfortable with America first conservative Republicans coercing government, leaning on government, messing around with government in the name of some of these culture wars or economic, political wars? For that matter, take a break. Back in a minute. 937 is our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Earl in Bennisville. Good morning, Earl. You're on the air.
10: Good morning. I've been listening to the conversation. Let's get one thing straight. Gender identity. When you were born, you're born either a boy or a girl. Now, I don't care what some twisted adult might tell you and might try to convince you in their warped sense. But you're either a boy or you're a girl. Now, they can put you through all kinds of different ideas, put them in your head and all of that. But understand one thing. Once you're born, you're either a boy or you're a girl. You're not a boy that is a girl, and you're not a girl that is a boy. You know, this this world has become something that I never thought it would be. You, know, you can do whatever you want. You can dress as a different sex. You could even mutilate your body and try to become a different sex but once you're born you're going to either be male or female and there is no in between and there is no changing it you need to get that straight i don't i don't know where they come up with these ideas that that make people think oh you're a little boy you just think you're a little girl Uh, because you were born a girl, but you're actually a little boy. It's the craziest thing I've ever heard of in my life. I hope y'all have a good day and a good week.
0: Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. I wish our buddy Elon Musk would buy some stock in Google, a big share of Google. I I Googled Ron DeSantis. I just put in two words, Ron DeSantis. Um, Here are the articles that came up. You ready? Variety Magazine, The Washington Post, The New York Magazine, The Daily Beast, Axios, MSNBC, and CNN. I mean, those are the of stories course. listed, and it says things like um, Larry Hogan, fellow Republican, calls out DeSantis over a crazy fight with Disney. DeSantis's threats to Disney is what post-Trump authoritarianism looks like. Um, Ron DeSantis' repulsive war on Disney will soon face a reckoning. It's just so unbelievably one-sided. Of the double standard of these media entities and enterprises. What they've done, Rev, or what they're trying to do is convince Earl and a lot of our listeners it's abnormal to believe that a boy is a boy and a girl is a girl. There are questions out there to ponder and to be concerned about. No, there's not. There is no question. I want to go down uh, another road in just a second, but we got a caller. Let's go there. Breeze, it's your turn. You're on. Hey, what's up,
11: guys? I'm hoping the professors are either in the home. Um studio or listening on the radio, but you hear stuff like um, authoritarianism and um, preserving democracy by the Democrat, politicians all the time. But when the majority of de- Democrats and the majority of Republicans believe that we should drill for our own oil to produce our own oil instead of a manufactured energy crisis that the, that the Democrat communist politicians have invented. But do the professors think that we're better off getting our oil from Venezuela or Iran? And how does that affect the environment? You know, does it, does it going to help the environment that it's, that it's from there or from here? You know, and then my next question would be, are the professors okay with PNR being censored on Facebook for, for freedom of speech? And I'm just curious to see what they think about that because, as you well know, Facebook allows nearly every pinpot dictator in the world. I think they may have finally censored Putin. But, I mean, you can be a member of ISIS and you're, and you're not censored on Facebook. But a guy that used to build truck beds and put Pe- up he'd be censored on Facebook. And what does he, what this professor think about free speech and censorship here in America?
0: Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate that. Let me ask you this, Rev. Um, and I'll ask the professors this as well. When you Google Ron DeSantis and you come up with a, a variety of articles, a variety, because uh, one is a variety, <laughs> uh, magazine piece, and it's Axios, we know that's far left. Uh, the Daily Beast, we know that's far left. New York Magazine, I'll let your mind wander as to whether you believe that's conservative or liberal. <laughs> uh, the Washington Post, MSNBC, and CNN—is that censorship? I mean, Google's algorithms yeah. are Google's algorithms, in, in, in some weird way, censorship. I mean, there is no Fox They're News skewing article. the results for a certain well, sure, outcome, I mean, if, right? Because if, you go, if you're if you riding down the road today and you hear a story about Ron DeSantis, and you don't know who Ron DeSantis is, you know exactly who Jerry Seinfeld is and Elaine Bettis and, and George and all, you know, Kramer and all those, but you don't have a clue. So you Google Ron DeSantis, and up comes an article from Variety and Axios and MSNBC.
1: is going to paint a certain picture sure, of Ron of DeSantis. It is.
0: You're going to say, well, I mean, Disney needs to stop that guy. I mean, he's trying to start these culture wars and attacking the great, you know, uh, conglomerate Disney. And, um, you know, woke is important. I mean, you know, 101 Dalmatians and, and Snow White. I mean, who are they hurting? They're not bothering anybody. Let's stop that Ron DeSantis. Hell, yeah, vote me against So <laughs> Give me a, a thumbs up against Ron. You see where I'm headed. I mean, it is Google's algorithms censorship. Take a break. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. Doctor Scott Coppen, Doctor Will Bolt are both here. Coppen is the history chair at Francis Marion University. Bolt is the um, history is a history professor at Francis Marion University. It takes two academics to keep up with me. I mean, we did it for a long time, one and one. And Coppen said, "Hey man, you're. I mean, I'm fatigued when I leave here trying to keep up with your um, enormous and amazing intellect on American uh, politics. So, can I bring a fellow comrade along?" And I felt it was fair—two academics and one good old boy—that normally um, levels the playing field, right? Well, we're going
12: to bring a third in just okay. because <laughs> well, yeah, I mean even two of us is enough. It may
0: be time. I mean, you guys have your struggles, and I certainly—I <laughs> I, want to begin by congratulating Dr. Kaufman for um, the Kansas State um, winning the national championship in basketball. It wasn't Kansas State. It was Oh, KU. it wasn't. I'm sorry. It was the Kansas Jayhawks that won the basketball championship. You just
12: love well, to just well, would love would, to drive that stake. That, that in, wouldn't don't happen you? to be the rival
0: of your Kansas State Wildcats, <laughs> would it?
12: Oh, it might just. So, be, so yes. any.
0: I mean, let, let me let me get this straight. So, anytime the rival of the team you adore wins a championship, that's not a good thing. No. Okay. I, 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 can, I would.
12: I would remind all your listeners that KU is under investigation by the NCAA for, for violations their basketball team is. And they're also national champions. <laughs> for
0: now. Okay, for now. No, okay, for now. Here we go, Rev. It's Russia, Russia, I Russia. I hear it. I hear it. There's some sort of collusion in the back. I know how you feel because Clemson won two ba- football championships, and any time your rival excels. I'm sorry. I thought it was Kansas State that won the, the basketball <laughs> national championship last year. I think that's Kansas's fourth national championship if i'm not mistaken um north carolina was going for their seventh you know when you think about it two of the blue bloods you would agree to that kansas Mm -hmm. and north carolina two of the blue bloods one wins three or goes into the game with three the other goes in the game with six if north carolina wins and they have seven and kansas still has three they've clearly separated themselves but if north carolina still has six and kansas all of a sudden has four uh you're you're talking about you know blue blood competition what are you looking at Reb? I'm, I'm showing Mike some
1: stuff on the board. Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, well, right. You
0: look at me like I'm doing something wrong no, here. No, I no. I mean, do you hate Kansas, too?
1: Yeah, no, no. In fact, I did barely you remember Kansas they sta- played a game last night. Did you night.
0: think Kansas State had won the championship as I did?
1: <laughs> yeah, I made that mistake.
0: And, too. and I've, I've embarrassed my good friend Kaufman, and I want to apologize for that. I certainly <laughs> didn't intend nor nor um, desire to do that. Um. So so let's go to um. – I'm going to start with kind of a topical issue that I think is very interesting. And it's not – well, it might be political, might not be. Um, Elon Musk yesterday disclosed that he has bought two um, $2.9 billion worth of Twitter stock makes him a 9.2% owner. Um, he is now the largest owner uh, of stock in Twitter, even more than Vanguard or Fidelity or some of these other investment houses. What do we make of that? Because Musk, Musk is not an ideologue. I mean, you and I would agree to that. Um, here's, here's what I like about Musk. You would agree with half of what Musk stands for, Dr. Kaufman, and I would agree with what about half. I mean, he is an interesting figure in American culture.
12: Well, yeah, um, and not just culture, but, of course, technology, mm-hmm. I mean, what, he, what he's doing. Um, and I have no doubt that, that, at least in part, this is a business move. He saw profit to be made here. Uh, but, of course, there's the question whether he's doing it as, this as well as an attempt to get back at Twitter for, for what Twitter did to him. And so it'll be, I'll be very curious to see what. What Twitter does with let's see some of its rules regarding who can be on Twitter. Dr. Bolt, his
0: um, 2.9 billion dollar investment because of a 27 percent uptick in the, in the price stock. a uh, stock price yesterday is now about 3.4 billion, so the guy made 500 billion, 500 million just buying the stock. But what do you make of that? I want to come back in a second and say, well, what do you make of him? I mean, do you think it's, as, as Dr. Coppen said, probably a rich guy making a smart business decision, or is this something no. more?
13: I to have just $2.9 billion sitting around on a, on a rainy day fun. But no, nice problem to have. But no, I'll, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. I, the guy's an entrepreneur. He's a pretty smart, savvy businessman. He's kind of got the modest touch. Just but everything he's touched, it turns to gold. And I think this is just a, a good business decision on his part. Who knows? Maybe it's going to come out down the road that there's an ulterior motive, that the maybe something a little more sinister, a way to kind of get back at Twitter. But at least on the surface from 30,000 feet. I think it's just a, a smart business move on his part.
0: Okay, let's go back to Dr. Kaufman. Would you agree, Dr. Kaufman, that Twitter censored the Hunter Biden story uh, just before the campaign
12: of Donald Trump and Joe Biden? Well, let's keep in mind that even the New York Post reporter who researched that story refused to have his name at that time associated with it because he didn't believe there was anything there. But it's accurate. Well, there's growing evidence that there was there was something there. Correct. Okay. Okay. Um and certainly I, I have no problem with an investigation continuing to find out what more we might what more might be taking place. In Kaufman's
0: world, should Twitter have censored the post reporting or not? Because they did. We know they did. And once again, I think you and I would agree here. You probably we'd probably define it a little bit differently, but I think you would oppose censorship i mean i think you are a free speecher i mean i think you believe in the first amendment and the right for someone to express themselves as they see fit you've often said that about limbaugh mm-hmm. you've often said that about trump whether yep. you like it or not but I mean, a guy has a right to say what it is he chooses to say i don't believe it's sinister to go back to dr bolt i think musk is very much someone who advocates for free speech i mean i think that's the heel he's willing to die on whether he's conservative or liberal depends on what day of the week and what issue we're talking about but but i do believe when it comes to to, to twitter he views them as someone overbearing in their censorship, disallowing fairness in the in the public domain and that was his motivation.
12: I think there's something something to that and it may be again, that's why I think that we need to look and see what Twitter does with its rules regarding who can post and what they what they can post. Um, but I've said in the radio, you're absolutely right. I've said in the radio many times. Um, let Trump be on Twitter. Uh, you have every right to disagree with him. you have every right not to read. Twitter, if you, if you don't want the tweets, if you don't want to, um, as long as the law is not being broken, um, then then I, I think there should be that that allowance of free speech. That said, we also keep in mind that Twitter is a private company that has the right to set its own rules. Having said that, he's exactly right. I mean, Twitter is a private company. They have a right to
0: set their own rules. Um, Musk has a right to rig the board if he sees fit, to figure out a way to get on the board or activist members on the board. And uh, this is going to be an interesting struggle. Now, here's the reality. Twitter dominates the public domain today in a way that traditional news historically has. Right. I mean that it is the news agency today, but it's still only, I mean I read yesterday, 26% of Americans have a Twitter account. 90% of the posts on Twitter are made by about 40% yeah. of that 26%. It's still a fairly limited universe, but it is a it's an it's an ever-growing universe. Dr. Bolt, uh, we've talked a lot about conservatism, has historically been deregulation, cut taxes, limited government. Do you sense that the America First agenda will include more activism? In other words, um, DeSantis and Disney, we'll get to that in just a couple of minutes. But it seems to me that people on the political right are now considering involving itself in the affair of the private sector in a way that they historically have not.
13: Right, I think it's sort of a it, it's a fluid moment in American politics. And if you just said oh those on the right are becoming engaging in these activities 20, 30 years ago, you'd have been laughed out of the room. But in many ways it's a conformer be cast out. Yet you have to do it the other guys on the left have been doing they've been doing it well for a long time. So if you don't adapt and change your ways that you're doing, you're going to get left behind and you're going to continue to lose on these arguments. So right, it's a, it's just it's a, it's a sign of the times that we live in now. That those who would certainly have abhorred such a position or such a tactic many years ago are now embracing it yes
0: and dr Kaufman, uh i got a quote here from jd vance um he says reaganite thatcherite conservatism is the rise of china the decimation of the american family and a lot of tax cuts for the rich zombie reaganites will be replaced by business skeptical conservatives uh, as someone who does not call himself a conservative, nor a Republican voter. What do you make of J.D. Vance's comments?
12: Uh, it shows just how much the Republican Party has changed. I mean, I can remember listening to Rush Limbaugh, listening to Sean Hannity, and Reagan was essentially God. Um, if you were not a Reagan Republican, there was something very, very wrong with you. And now all of a sudden to hear stuff like that, that if you're a Reaganite, you're a zombie, you're part of the establishment, it, it just demonstrates how much the Republican Party has changed, the directions that it's going in. Um, and it's another reason why an individual like Trump or at least Trump's movement remains so influential because he was seen as someone who was going to shake things up, uh, go after the establishment, go after the businesses that were that supporting the establishment, because even Trump said, I'm one of them. I know how it works and I can deal with these people. Uh, The the party has really, really changed over the past generation.
0: You know, when you look at some of the comments in this article, it's a Bloomberg article I find very interesting, Uh, Dr. Bolt. It says um, the new conservatives are fiercely hostile to globalization and immigration on the grounds that they have delivered lower incomes for workers, along with the destruction of America's common culture. This is a very nationalist movement. Um, Kopman would argue it borders on isolationism some others on the left would argue that and I think that's a fair debate to, to have but the new conservatives are basically being shaped by, by the voting constituency yeah. I mean this is where the voters want the party to be
13: well this isn't the first time parties evolve throughout the history of the United States you go back to the original Republican Party a party committed to opposing slavery you move forward into the Gilded Age it now is the party of, of big business uh, the Democratic Party, prior to FDR in the New Deal, was committed to states' rights. And then suddenly FDR, Lyndon Johnson, it's the party of big government. And again, this is the—I mean, political historians are going to be writing about what Trump has been able to do. This is a brilliant political maneuver. He has co-opted the Republican Party, taken it in a new direction. There's still a battle for the soul of the Republican Party. But sort of the traditional George H.W. Bush Republicans— they're fighting a rearguard action. I mean, this is an America first party, and Trump is still uh, the vanguard.
0: And is this, I mean, jump in, Dr.
13: Coppin. I was just
12: able to follow that up by saying we are seen the same thing happen in the left as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, the fact that we have the rise of individuals like AOC, Bernie Sanders, the progressive wing of the party, demonstrates that that party, too, is beginning to change in, in a number of ways. Uh, and you have, And as a result, you have a party, as I've talked about, that finds itself at war with itself, with the progressive wing and the more moderate wing trying to figure out exactly what direction the party should go in.
0: But is the, is the, is the, is the American working class at war with the, the corporations that, um, that maybe or maybe not have advantaged themselves at the trough of government? Well, fundamentally, I mean, I understand the politics, and, and I think Dr. Bolt labeled it. I mean, this is, this is the rest and residue of Donald Trump's presidency, that there is no doubt. He molded this party. Now, once again, you can't mold something that doesn't choose to be molded. I mean, this was a very willing body or group of people that said, yeah, I don't like the way things are. Um, I think you, when you start insulting Reagan, you've got to be careful there. But J.D. Vance and some others are. But but the point I want to make is, I mean, th- this is this is what Trump left behind as a Republican Party.
12: Well, again, this this response to globalization, the belief that, uh, that the American people are being left behind. In is it part- a belief or
0: a reality? I'm interrupting you, but is it a belief or is it a reality?
12: Well, I guess it depends upon your, your point of view, but certainly for those individuals who feel they've lost their job as a result of globalization, as a result of these the, the way that the, the market works and therefore see that somehow the big businesses behind this uh, who look at the fact that you've got these CEOs making hundreds of times more money than they are, um, that, that certainly you're going to look back and say something is very, very wrong here. And given that the establishment, quote unquote, has not changed things for who knows how many years, when somebody like a Trump or someone who sounds like Trump comes along, you're going to listen. Um, and you may not agree with all what he has to say. You may not agree with the way he says it, but there's enough there to make you go, yeah. So the Trump argument plays on the left if
0: Trump's not delivering. Is that what you're saying? I mean, somebody could say something similar to what Trump has said
12: and people on the left. I mean, it gets their ear. Is there, that- there is that popul- Yeah, there is that populism on the left as well. Um, and, and again, it is, it is getting individuals' ears. The question, of course, is going to be, um, where does that take the party uh, for the for Democrats? Where is that going to take the party? Can the party survive if if it's going to find itself divided between that progressive slash populist wing and that more moderate wing um, that that we're, that we're seeing we're sure, seeing happen right sure, now? Sure. Sure.
13: Sure. The political brilliance of Trump is that this America First, this sentiment mentality, it was out there. You, you go back to Pat Buchanan, Ross Perot. Ted Cruz could have picked up on it and rather Hillary Clinton, any other Democrat could have maybe if they had their finger on the pulse, it was out there. It was Trump who said a Wall Street Manhattan businessman who kind of figured out that those working class industrial workers, small farmers were being left behind. And there was a lot of angst and anger with these globalization policies. And he was the guy who tapped into it. It had been out there for 20 years. Any other guy, politician could have done it. Trump was the one who did it. And it certainly it's paid po- huge political rewards for him
0: and his followers. And it's reshaped politics in America as we speak. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Jim and Florence, good morning. Jim, you're on.
14: Hey, good morning, guys. So so I would kind of consider myself an, an America-firster. I don't know how much uh, a Republican I would actually consider myself. But when I read the news the other day about the Amazon workers in Stanton Island unionizing, probably five years ago I would have – snickered at it, and but now I find myself sort of cheering for them and excited for them um, and, and and hoping that we see a continued unionization within the e-commerce sector and maybe it brings those things into check. But when we think about what J.D. Vance had to say and we think about the America First movement, which is, uh, has put the Republican Party turning it up on its head, is it time for the Republican Party, to embrace a new style of, of unions um, that that may come out of this America First agenda. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Jim. I mean, the, the, the business skeptical conservative, I mean, I, I've heard that. I mean, I didn't coin that phrase. I mean, I've heard that out there floating around. I uh, think Peter Thiel may say things like that. Um, I don't know that Trump thinks enough to say business skeptical. I'm conservative. That's three words that kind of go together. He doesn't do, but about two words that <laughs> be nice. <laughs> I mean, hey, there's there's genius in his simplicity. I mean, both these professors are not in their head. There's great genius in his simplicity of the, um of delivering. I mean, make America great again. How complicated is that? Who doesn't understand? Maybe you don't like it. Maybe you sense that it means the 60s or the 50s or the 40s. Or, but make America great again is, is easy to comprehend, easy to understand. I want to confess, I mean, as a business owner, I've always been nervous about labor unions. I mean, I think they add to the cost of, um, of labor. I think, I think they make conducting business more expensive. But I'm a little bit like Jim. I caught myself in the weirdest way imaginable cheering for um,
12: the Amazon workers in the name of
0: America first, that is very unusual, Doctor Coughlin. It
12: is, but we're seeing it happening. Um, uh, we're seeing it happening at Starbucks, Buffalo, New York. The oh, yeah, yeah. Starbucks mm-hmm. there just unionized, There's been some other ones as far, you know, all over the country. Starbucks as far west as Seattle, not surprisingly, uh, unionizing as well. So there has been this reaction, um, and the caller has an interesting point, and that is: is this something the Republican Party can can capture? Um, that is going to be a very, very interesting question, uh, especially if we can, if this movement continues to gain momentum.
0: And then, Dr. Bolt, last question. We'll take a break, and you guys, because I'm going to get to Ukraine and Russia in just a couple of seconds. But I want to go to this. Is there a political precedent? I mean, is there is there a precedent of a party being ideologically driven, giving in to populism, engaging a, 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 a kind of a grievance class? I don't want to say the American working class is is, is, is a grievance, but, but in, in essence, that's kind of what Trump was. I mean, Trump was a protest vote. Yep. The American yep. working class felt nobody listened to them, nobody paid them any attention. Along comes, to your point, a billionaire from Manhattan with his own private jet, and his message resonates. Is there any historical precedent to, to ideologically or ideology becoming populism and engaging uh, a kind of a grievance vote? Well, Tr- Trump won in
13: 2016. He got industrial workers to come out and vote. Democrats took that for granted. The old Rust Belt, Trump tapped into that. You go back to Franklin Roosevelt, 1932, You know everybody was upset with Wall Street and Hoover, the Republican, couldn't get the country out of the Great Depression. Industrial workers, who which had been a part of the Republican Party up to FDR, FDR is sympathetic to labor unions. They now become a key part of the Democratic constituency. They kind of take it for granted, right? Trump realized that. So again, right, sort of a grievance, a protest. FDR kind of tapped into that and was able to use it for politically. And, again, a lot of those groups that had been traditionally Republican were now members of the Democratic Party for generations. So, again, what's happening here with Trump and America first, long
0: shadows. Similar to post-Depression, no question about it. Hey, we'll take a break. We'll be back. These guys can hang around one more segment. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. Tuesday morning, 843 So conservatives cheering for labor unions. Wow. Um, That's kind of a... um, (laughs) That's a um, what's up with that? Yeah, that, that's you better believe it. What's up with that? That's very different than um, than history would um, would would dictate. I want I want to shift gears and go to Dr. Will Bolt, Dr. Scott Kaufman, both with us. I'm here for another segment. Kaufman, I'll start with you if you don't mind. Um, no, no, at no time until now have we proposed a scenario where Ukraine successfully defends their territory and defeats Russia in some way now defeat would be uh, or win or victory would be a hard word to define i'm sure there would be some um, ambiguity there but but is that something on the table now that russia could fail in its quest to take
12: certain parts of ukraine and make them their own well certainly the ukrainians have done very well for themselves we we'll still have to see what happens in this last what may be the last phase of this war which is the effort by the russians to take over the entire donbass region uh, there's no doubt that's what the Russians are going to be gunning for, and they'll probably bring all the assets they have available to do that. Um, so I would not say at this point we're talking about victory for Ukraine, but certainly the Ukrainians have done very very well for themselves. They've proven they can stand up to the Russians, um, and uh, the Russians have taken a definitely taken a bloody nose. But a I don't
13: know if there's anything a moral victory in a in a conflict like this, but certainly if you if you went to Vegas before this nobody would have bet that the war would still be going on Mm -hmm. and the Ukrainian people would still be uh, holding up. I I think it fundamentally alters the calculus. uh, If I'm a policymaker at the Pentagon or a defense think tank, I'm reevaluating all of my positions in war plans. If heaven forbid the United States had to go to war against Russia, they are in many ways a paper tiger. If they have struggled this mightily, Uh, and certainly it is, it is emboldened NATO we talk about the, the sort of the re-rise of labor unions nato is once again a potent force to be reckoned with so it's the reverberations for whatever however this ends are going to be felt uh, for a long time for sure
0: if you live in ukraine this is about ukraine and i understand that i mean how do you win when you're when your nation's been blown to smithereens but there is an international part of this the international community nato the western world we've always perceived russia As a a strongman, there's no question about it. Is a military worth um, being concerned about? The Western world's always tiptoed around what Putin or Russia may or may not do. Um, Has that fundamentally shifted now, Dr. Kaufman?
12: Well, I I like the way one general, U.S. general put it, and this is, I'm sorry to insult the Vermont National Guard, but he said that the Russian military is the Vermont National Guard, uh, but with nuclear weapons. That's the one thing here we have to think about is they do have the, the nuclear capability. Uh, But my colleague is absolutely right. If I'm if I'm a policymaker right now, if I'm the Defense Department, I'm looking at this and thinking to myself, wow, uh, I thought the the Russian military was a force to be reckoned with. And what I'm seeing here is a military that just cannot do the job. Um, And as long as Putin's in power, I think we're going to continue seeing that. I think what we've seen is a Russia that has so much corruption that has misused its funds so poorly and relies so heavily upon conscripts who don't want to be there that you end up with a military that is is uh, manned by individuals who who don't want to fight, uh, who that has not put much money into R and D, uh, and ends up losing uh, at least at this point a war to a to a country that everyone thought they could easily defeat. Is this the end of Vladimir Putin on the global
0: stage? Has he so isolated and alienated himself that there is no way to be generally accepted? in the world of global economies and global politics, Dr. Bolt?
13: Probably publicly, but privately, I mean, he still has. They produce a lot of energy. They still produce a lot of energy.
0: Very, they, they, lot of energy.
13: India is very sure. heavily reliant and dependent on this. So I, I would imagine publicly there's going to be sort of a distancing from Russia, but certainly maybe behind the scenes. Again, if somebody's providing you with all of that oil and natural gas, you don't bite the hand that feeds you. So as, as long as they have access to that, there's still gonna be a potent force.
0: But yes. a where does where does Russia go from here? Forget Putin for a second. Where does Russia go from here?
12: That's a good question. And I'm not I'm not sure. I think right now it's gonna be largely the same thing. Um as much as I hate to say it, Putin has control of that country. He has effectively censored the media. He's effectively gotten rid of his political opponents by literally killing them off. Um I mean a poll that just came out of Russia recently, and again we gotta be careful with these polls out of Russia, but Found that 83% of Russians support Putin, which is actually an increase over the way it had been. Uh, these pictures coming out of the Ukraine, the the Putin Putin is selling them as, oh, this is all fake news. These these are these are fake photographs. Um, and so he he's at this point he has done a very good job of keeping himself in power. The ruble is is doing better than it was before. And yeah, I mean he's a power player still when it comes to energy. So um, at least at this point, I don't think there's much that the average Russian who wants to change things can do. It's going to require the oligarchs and even more so the military in Russia to send up to Putin and say enough. But I don't see that happening at this point.
0: But do we know, either of you guys, do we know if there's a line a mile long waiting to take Vladimir Putin's place and lead the country in a similar direction or a fundamentally different direction. I mean, th- I mean, we, we, ass- we make assumptions. I mean, that's all we can do is make assumptions. Is the polling valid or not? I mean, I would suggest that the follow-up question, do you support Vladimir Putin? Would you rather die today? You know, and you know, mm. of course I support him, Bill. Yeah, you know, uh, go Vlad, go Vlad, go <laughs> Vlad. Uh, I don't want to cut my head off or I don't want you yeah. cutting my head off. But but, Dr. Bolt, is there is there a line, once again, a mile long, that are waiting in the wings to lead Russia in a similar way or in a uniquely different way?
13: Probably privately, once once Putin dies or decides to step away, then then the knives come out. But I think if you look at the history of Russia, most of them, aside from Khrushchev, right, who was deposed, Stalin, Brezhnev. They die in sure, office. They die in office, sure. exactly. So it's, yeah, There's not like there's a history for coups and picking off the guy in power. So And what's Putin is in the early 70s and so on. Could be around for a long, long time. I would imagine.
0: I want to. I want to make a. a, a I, this is a theory I'll offer up and get your guys' opinion on this. Um, the biggest loser in all this, the person probably most confused this morning, is Xi of China. I mean, th- th- there was this alliance he made. In other words, maybe I'm not um, the preeminent superpower on the planet. America is. I, th- I think in his in his private moments, he knows that to be the case, but if I can somehow gain favor with Russia and I can unite with Russia, some of their energy exportation, some of their nuclear weaponry combined with my economic and geopolitical status, um, we could be a force to be reckoned with in worldly affairs. My theory is that Putin is much more comfortable being this isolated than Xi or China can afford to be. You say what to that, Dr. Kaufman?
12: Given the amount of Trade that China has with other nations, like the United States, the Western world, right? Given China's history, I know Russia has the same history, but China's history of trying to gain favor in other nations, largely through economic methods, through trade. Um, I, I, I would agree with you that she needs to have that international acceptance. But that said there are things the West historically has been able to offer the Russians that they would want as well, like high tech, uh, computer chips as an example. So on that level alone, uh, being isolated for Russia could ultimately be a very, very bad thing. Dr. Bolt, same question.
13: Well, who knows? Maybe it's maybe it's the opposite. Maybe uh, China wants to kick somebody while they're down. This is a chance maybe to not give a death blow, but to assert that, all right, United States is going to be number one. And we're going to be number two. And Russia's going to be a distant third at this point. So, again, maybe they figure it's a zero-sum game. We're not going to surpass the United States. So, hey, if Russia is losing, it's a it's a benefit for us. Or so are you that arguing
0: that Xi makes a calculus that Russia and Putin are not salvageable? at this point? So, right. so why would I muddle over cut, there? Cut, bait, and run. Yeah, cut, yeah. bait, and run. The deal we made was, was obviously not a smart deal. Yep. But how can we turn it into a win? The way we turn it into a win is we supplant. Russia as the alternative exactly. Exactly. to U.S. dominance. Hang them out
13: to dry and say, "Here, we're open for business."
0: And that's very interesting, and that's um that's something it would not surprise us at all okay. if the Chinese did that.
12: No, because there's a long history of tensions between the the between Soviet Union slash Russia and China that goes all the way back to to uh, China becoming communist in 1949. So that's very possible. Um, and I would also throw into the mix the fact that Xi, from fairly early on, did have some wariness about what Russia was doing. The very fact that he was willing to ta- that Putin was willing to attack a sovereign country, that was something that the Chinese historically have had issues with, because they believed that historically their own sovereignty was endangered by nations in Europe, by the United States, and so. Uh, while on the one hand, they're they're saying, yeah, go Putin, go Putin, behind the scenes, there were some concerns there about what Putin was doing.
0: One of you mentioned a second ago, last question, one of you mentioned a second ago, some of the human atrocities we've seen in some of the suburbs around Kiev. Uh, we don't know what to believe and what not to believe. We don't know what reality is, but it looks terrible. I mean, there are innocent lives. I mean, they're bound, they're blindfolded, they're handcuffed, they're slaughtered, they're in mass graves. Um, you know, we're speculating about what is true and what is not true. But it looks to me that the Russians got real angry and frustrated and out of that were just reckless and and committed war crimes and his human atrocities. Is Putin a war criminal? And what happens to war criminals in 2022?
12: Yes, he's a war criminal. But the problem is, how do you bring him to justice? Uh, we can look at Serbia as an example. Slobodan Milosevic was declared a war criminal. But the only way reason he was brought to justice is his own people turned against him and they turned him over to the, what the International Criminal Court. Um, as long as Putin remains solidly in power, you can say whatever you want about the guy. Uh, there's it's going to be impossible to bring him to justice. You agree with
13: that? Oh, I mean, oh absolutely. He's 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 untouchable at this point. And then back to your 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 point, I usually will keep the news on in the background around the house. And now with those images, I don't want my daughter, ten year old daughter, to see some of that stuff. Can't so can't follow the news as closely as you normally would. So, but again, there's no way again short of a coup and and putin being apprehended or captured by nato or the west uh he's never gonna have a day in court no
0: you know those visuals as someone who considers himself to be a non-interventionist conservative republican it's hard to be That's as good. non-interventionist when you see those those sort of visuals but you got to remind yourself and i think you guys agree with me um every nation on this planet is suspect to propaganda I mean, we don't take things at face value in controversial issues like this. It looks to be, um, you know, crimes against humanity and war crimes. But but Kaufman,
12: we don't know that. I mean, all, all of this is conjecture and speculation. The evidence, I think, is overwhelming. Um, and let me just say— And, and who I, Putin I, is contributes to that. Yes. And let me just say, and I, I may be taken to task for saying this, but as a, as a member of the Jewish community who lost family in the Holocaust, uh, whose wife— lost family in the Holocaust uh to see pictures like this is uh, is very emotional for me um it, it, it it's just horrific what has happened here um and absolutely I would love to see these individuals brought to justice and given their just due
0: interesting and I think we'll conclude we'll conclude uh with that comment very appropriate comment I might okay. add take a break back in just a minute Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. Breaking news. Elon Musk has been named to the Twitter board of directors. Oh, really? So, yeah, he will Here take a go. more activist role in, uh, in oh, Twitter. Right. Hey, imagine the fun you could have if you had enough money to buy your way onto a board that you felt was not doing the public justice. I mean, imagine. I mean, okay, let's ask this another way. You ready? What would you do? If you had that sort of money, I mean, if you had, you know, blank you money, I mean, what would you do? I mean, a Musk is worth, I mean, he's really not worth $263 billion because Tesla's value is inflated. SpaceX's value is inflated. Tesla's is probably more inflated, but it is what it is. I mean, there's a stock price. There's a buyer and a seller. Therefore, Tesla, I mean, his, his stock price, excuse me, his, his personal worth is tied up largely in Tesla stock and SpaceX stock. So, when you have a, a run-up in Tesla stock or a run-up in SpaceX, he becomes just stupid wealthy. I mean, it, it's like uh, he made a, a half a billion dollars yesterday just buying the stock. What would you do? What would you buy? Uh, I've often said, if I had $10 million, I'd go to the beach. If I had $100 million, I ain't going no damn where. You, you, know, <laughs> right, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm going to be engaged and activist. Um, there's a number that you just can't change the world, but you can change your world. You can go to the beach and live a good life and do whatever you want to do. Go to as many Braves games Rev. sit wherever you want to at Williams, Bryce or Death Valley, but you don't have the kind of money to get on the Twitter board, you know, or to buy your way into some, I don't know, um, economic or social standing. But I mean, if you've got 256 or $253 billion, I mean, you can do anything you choose to do. What would you do? I'll ask our listening audience, if you got your hands on um, let's say a hundred billion dollars, I mean a billion dollars would be different. Well, maybe not. I mean a billion dollars doesn't get you on the Twitter board. Two point nine billion does. So you'd have to have multiple billions of dollars. Let's say fifty billion dollars. I mean if you had fifty billion dollars and you took a, a billion, which is a thousand million, and you put it off to the side and say, Hey, this will take care of the taxes, the insurance, you know, making sure we got food to eat and all these <laughs> other good things. So I've got $99 billion of which just to have fun and play around with. What would you do if you had that sort of money? So, so we is, have
1: one tech billionaire who is uh, gaining some influence at Twitter, which is going to be very interesting to see he, what he does. Me, we have another one that influenced a presidential election with his money. No question
0: about it. and, and so what, what would we, you do? We've had two. I mean, in all honesty, Peter Thiel would fall into that category. I mean, he's he's funding J.D. Vance's campaign. He's funding Blake Master's campaign. I mean, if you were a billionaire, a multi-billionaire, let's say Thiel Zuckerberg, uh, once again, Rev's right, Zuckerberg took his billions and spent a half a billion trying to influence the outcome of the election, and it worked. Um, Elon Musk takes his multiple billion, gets on the board at Twitter. Now, what he's going to do, we don't have a clue. I mean, you got to believe for him to be on the board, this is much more than just a an investment opportunity. This is not a man motivated by can I make another billion. Well, I bet bucks. he's motivated to fix Twitter. No question about it. And, and you know, you, you go back and look at some of the uh, some of the tweets he sent out over the years, especially when Dorsey uh, was removed as chairman, or excuse me, CEO, and this um, Indian business person was placed on. I can't think of his name, but they've shown um, his face. Uh, in, uh an impression of uh, w- i'll look up that up during the break i can't think of his name but he's from india and uh and they believe he's the guy that is uber liberal and extremely dedicated to censorship and making sure you know the uh the neanderthals such as yours i, I read i
1: read a quote and he he really has no interest in first amendment stuff, no n- not at as all as it relates no, to no, twitter no.
0: well he's from india you know i mean he's he's not um it's not in his dna He's not an American through and through. I'm not insulting the guy, but I mean, it's obvious he doesn't care much for um, opposite and, uh, you know, competitive opinions. But yeah, I mean, I'll i ask our listeners if you had 50 billion bucks, what would you do? Don't say go to the beach. I mean, I get that. Musk will go to the beach when he chooses to go. Probably won't be often because he's too busy. He works. To on the board. Yeah, I mean, he works as, I mean, he's a workaholic and he's a genius. Those people are tough to deal with. Take a break. Back in a minute. There's some of the mindset that a a social media platform eventually – it kind of uh, – it's a natural monopoly. Uh, Trump tried – what was it called? The Trump truth Truth social social platform. I mean, it's gone nowhere. Well, I mean, it's gone nowhere. I mean, it's a a miserable failure, and it will fail. I mean, uh, for whatever reason, uh, a few of these things work, and everybody else does not. Now, as somebody who believes in the free market – Twitter just does it better. Facebook does it better. Um, Instagram does it better. Uh, but what has happened is the second that Twitter or, or Facebook perceives someone to be a legitimate and, and viable comp- competitor, they go out and buy it. I mean, that's historically what they've done. Now, Facebook has figured out a way to monetize their social media platform. Twitter has not ever made a lot of money. It has a market cap of about $50 billion. So if Musk wanted to buy it all, he could. You know, there's this belief that I mean, even in conservative circles, there's some who believe that it's the de facto public domain now, and it's the um, the place of which disseminates and and um, and you know relates information or relays information to the masses that it should be regulated, kind of like a water company. You know, you got water companies, and you got you know you can't have a competitive water company, and then you got price constraints, and you got restrictions, and all sorts of bylaws that go along. I'm not saying it should or should not. But some argue that social media platforms kind of morph naturally into these um, natural monopolies like a water company would, and um, it needs to be regulated in the same fashion or manner. Um, and yeah, the the the, um, well, uh, the apparent collapse, let's say that the apparent collapse of the Donald Trump, what is it social trump truth, truth, truth social, social media platform. Um,
1: there was some news that some high-level executives
0: left there. This, well, I mean, week. it's just not going to succeed. I mean, it's going to fail miserably. What Trump should have done was like um, a premium subscription. Trump should have said to Fox News, pay me $100 million a year, and I'll have a, a 299 premium feature on Fox News, and we split the money. You know what I mean? Some sort of model like that. But who was it? Was it Parler? That they
1: tried to do a, a competitor to Twitter, yeah. and then they started getting a little traction. A little and, bit of
0: traction, but not much.
1: But then but then they, they got shut down, the, like the Amazon hosting services sure. took them offline. Well, I mean,
0: they're, they're private businesses. I mean, they choose to do business with whomever Apple they choose took their apps to do off. business. Yeah. But, I mean, they've got the right to do that well, unless you begin regulating like you would regulate a water company. Here's the point I'm trying to make. Yeah, if anybody can start a competitor to Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, it would probably be Elon Musk. I mean, would you agree with that? Sure. But I mean, if there are a handful of people in the world that could successfully, gotta have a lot of money. Yeah, a lot of money and creativity and find the right people and probably go to Stanford, <laughs> MIT, yeah, and places that helps like that. Yeah. Um, but but it would probably make more sense to me if you've got 267 billion, the market cap for Twitter's 50 billion. Just buy Twitter and convert it to a genuine free speech platform that does not discriminate against conservatives. I mean, to me, that's um, that makes the most sense. Now, I don't know how committed Musk is to, you know, uh, does he think it's his obligation to do this? I don't have any idea, but he's on the board at Twitter or will be on the board at Twitter. Um, I just looked at a tweet a second ago, uh, a tweet a second ago that said um, he cut a deal. With Twitter leadership uh, to get a board seat, so I would imagine all this is pre-negotiated. In other words, nobody woke up yesterday at Twitter, and, and the and the upper management surprised that Musk had a 9.2 percent stake in the company. I would imagine there have been many preliminary conversations and discussions about, "Hey Elon, don't buy it all. If you buy 9.2 percent, you'll get a board seat and you'll be able to um, to execute some of your plan, it influence some policy." See fit. The question is does Trump get back on Twitter? That's interesting. I mean, that that would be very interesting because I don't think Musk is a big Trump fan. No, but I believe... He believes Trump shouldn't be able to express he's himself. as a fan as of free sees, speech. He is absolutely a fan of, of free speech. And, Rev, here's the deal with all these technocrats, and I'm talking about the Musk and the Teals and even the Zuckerberg to some degree. They border on anarchy. I mean, most of these guys have a, a very zealous streak about them that, you know, um, the constraints of government or why we've not advanced technologically the way we probably should have. We probably should be in flying cars today. I mean, Teal's talked a little bit about that. We should probably be in flying cars, but government restriction and government, you know, um, orchestrates by design um, the constraint of entrepreneurship and innovation. And they basically dictate outcomes. Uh, We'll reward you to do this, but we'll penalize you for doing that. So all these guys, uh zuckerberg's a little bit different because he's kind of declared a party well i mean teal's declared a party okay let's use three guys as an example teal has said i'm a republican i'm supporting republican candidates zuckerberg has said i'm a democrat i'm supporting democratic candidates and teal i mean musk has said uh you'll see (laughs) or we shall see you know he's just he's a little unique as unique as teal and zuckerberg are they're not as unique as musk. He's is. a mystery. Oh, but he's an absolute mystery man. I mean,
1: he's he's tweeted things about the red pill before that make you think, "Oh, okay, yeah. He's on our side." And then some of these things you agree with about free speech, but then maybe
0: not. Yeah. And and uh, you talked we talked a little bit yesterday about his spirituality or not. You know, the Republican Party historically has been um or is included. It's not been, but it's included some version of what I'll call religious fundamentalism. There's got to be some of that. The only time I've ever heard Musk describe his political philosophy was in an interview at a tech conference when he called it intelligent realism. Now, now what that means, I've read several places where he's an atheist. You know, he doesn't believe in God. He believes in the Big Bang and evolution and all these other sorts of things. I think very often um, guys like that play games with guys like me. You know, they'll tease you into believing that you can comprehend or understand um, the mysteries of their domain when in all honesty there are no mysteries um, i just think these guys Revan, i really believe this i think the teals the zuckerbergs uh, the musk of the world i think they have to wander in and out of anarchy i just think their 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 minds are so uh different than the majority of peoples uh what did teal said i mean teal said that he is a um uh capitalist anarchist or anarcho-capitalist there you go an anarcho-capitalist and by definition an anarcho-capitalist is someone constantly trying to reconcile capitalism in its most primitive fashion and anarchy so i mean teal's kind of let it be known that he wouldn't have a big problem with anarchy if it came along every now and then let's go to the phone here is david in the pd morning david
10: Yes, sir. Good morning to the Magic Mike Diamond Dave show. Uh, <laughs> and we got G.I. Ken with the Kung Fu Grip. Um, hey, y'all, you were talking about Ukraine. Ken, um, Kiev, however you want to pronounce it, it's got 3 million people. And I was talking to a guy from Chicago the other night. I said, Could you imagine taking over Chicago? And we got this interesting discussion. He says, Well, actually, there's five million people in Chicago during the daytime. But to me, I give these Ukrainian people, they didn't want to be taken over. The Democrat Party is taking over Chicago, but they didn't want to be taken over. And I was, what encouraged me about Ukraine, I was watching some actually people that, that, that fended off these tanks and stuff that live out in the country. And I used this term, these guys were Zary. Larry Zonka looking. Another, You know who Larry Zonka is. I do. But most people don't. But this is a big guy. He's got this rock jaw. We talk about all this Kansas and whatever they call their thing. But this cat was sitting out there talking to to this reporter he had on a camouflage vest, ammo clipped in his pocket. And the guy was smoking a cigarette. And he says, I'm out here to defend my country and I looked behind him. He had a farmhouse. And I can, being from the country, that was pretty country. He had nice land back there. He was going to fight for his land. And, but when you ever talk about Elon Musk, I think, what are the ingredients for the electric car? And everybody thinks, oh, there's electricity. No, there's a lot of ingredients that go in there. And these things are mined out the ground. Uh, these are components that come out the ground. And where are they at? Um And I see these battles, and I, I foresee maybe we have a West Ukraine, East Ukraine. These things are in Afghanistan and different places. So it, it just boggles my imagination that how far in advance these guys are looking at things. They're looking at colonizing Mars. Look, I just care about what's going on in Pampaco and Allendale County and these places like that. So – I mean, that's on my heart. That's on my mind. So I'll leave you at
0: that. Thank you, uh, David. Appreciate that. You know, I was thinking about, is there a uh, is there a precedent here? When Jeff Bezos bought the Washington Post, nobody freaked out. I mean, it was a rich guy. I mean, it was kind of a, a dying leftist media company. It was mainstream well, you media. just wondered what he was up to. Well, why you did. why I mean, did he do it? But, I mean, you, you automatically think, hey, here's a rich guy who wants to be a part of the public discourse. I mean, he doesn't like the way Amazon's being treated, doesn't like the way the political narrative or economic narrative, whatever. I mean, he didn't like the obituary section of the way they did it. Or I mean, you don't have any idea. It's his money. It was for sale, and he bought it. But Brian Stettler was not in an uproar. I mean, the, the, um, the boardroom at CNN was not in a turmoil. Uh, at, the, at the time, he was the richest man in, in, in America, by well, the world. Um, he buys the Washington Post. Nobody freaked out when that happens, and now all of a sudden Elon Musk buys 9.2% of Twitter, and he must be stopped. I mean, Stetler said, I'm sure there is nefarious um, thoughts here. I'm sure there's a reason to be concerned, and nobody was concerned once again when Bezos, he didn't buy 9.2% of the Washington Post. He bought it all. I mean, he owns the Washington Post, Um, and arguably the Washington Post would be out of business if Jeff Bezos had not become uh, the sole proprietor of that, um, I would say fine institution, but I'll call it a uh, enduring institution. <laughs> How about that? It's an enduring institution. Um, is, is, is Musk operating on noble principles and reasons in the name of free speech? I don't have any idea. Is it a business decision that he believes the market cap of Twitter is undervalued and is $2.9 billion? Can all of a sudden be six billion or ten billion, or I don't have any idea what his motivations are. But I can say this: if you aren't an activist investor, you don't want to be on the board. Or excuse me, you do want. To. If you're an activist investor, then you want to be on the board. I mean, that's the reason that that's Carl Icahn scares the daylights out of everybody on Wall Street. Icon doesn't buy big positions of companies just to be investor, a passive investor that says, hey, I don't want to get in the room when you guys make these consequential decisions. I trust you to do the right thing. No, when Icon comes knocking, it's normally how much do I have to buy to get a board seat? You know what the second thing Icon does? How do I get control of the board? Now, Icon is a corporate raider. There is no doubt about that. There's nothing about Musk to suggest he's anything like Icon. Um, Carl Icahn is an old hand at corporate takeovers and hostile takeovers. Musk is very different because we don't know what his motivations are. But when they announced this morning that he's going to be on the board of directors at Twitter, he's going to be an activist investor. He's not going to be a passive investor. And if you see the world as we do, and you believe that Twitter has unfairly censored opinions of people on the right, conservatives in general, um, there are these leftist gatekeepers that um, that don't allow free speech and um, organic confrontational conversations. Um, there's nothing about Musk that leads us to believe that he is anything but an advocate and a proponent for free speech. What we can argue about is religious beliefs or his spiritual leanings or not. Uh, once again, I've read several places he's an atheist, but there's nothing about him that is inconsistent with his belief that Americans should be able to freely and fairly express themselves. Um, is he going to allow Trump to be back on Twitter? That's, mean, is, that's why this is know, going to be so well, but entertaining. But, but here's the interesting part of this. Um, can he? I mean, he's one board member. You know, I mean, he doesn't own the company. I mean, Jeff Bezos, I would imagine, can hire and fire everybody at the Washington Post if he chooses to. I mean, you know... Ninety one point eight percent of the excuse me, eighty-nine point eight percent of the stock of Twitter is owned by somebody other than Elon Musk. Does Elon Musk play well with Vanguard? Does Musk play well with Fidelity? You know what I predict? No, no, because <laughs> those guys aren't interested in political speech. Those guys aren't interested in the First Amendment. You know what Vanguard's interested in? What is it worth today? And what do I think it'll be worth tomorrow? Same thing with Fidelity, and they're the big um, the big owners now, now. Musk now owns more than Fidelity or Fidelity or Vanguard um, does. But but the representatives for I don't know who's on the board at um, Twitter uh, representing Vanguard or, or Fidelity. But I can assure you of this: if Fidelity or Vanguard took that kind of position in a company like Twitter, they've got a board seat or two. I can assure you of that. That went along with the uh, with the deal. And now all of a sudden, Musk owns more than they do, and he's on the board. Can he convince them to allow Trump or the, uh, the the people that have been deplatformed to be reinstated? Let's go to the phone.
1: Here's Rujan in the PD. Morning, Rujan.
0: Good morning,
15: gentlemen. So I see now we've got uh, Cantankerous Ken, uh, uh, Daredevil Dave, and Magic Mike. I just I tell you what, that's that's gonna be a hell of a combination. So <laughs> <laughs> watch out Carolina. Hey listen, I, I think I think what happened with Musk is uh he's kinda sat back and kinda sat back and kinda sat back and and once they hit him, I think maybe he had a uh and then they came from me moment. <clears throat> uh it was okay when they went after Trump, it was okay when they go after conservatives, it was okay when they go after everybody, but they have the audacity to censor something that I wrote and 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 deplatform me, I want to deplatform me. Nah, that's not gonna happen. So he said, "Well, I tell you what, I can shut them down and make money at the same time." And I think that might be a little bit of what he's doing. You know, uh, it's kind of hard. It's kind of <laughs> it's kind of funny when you uh, that little feist dog come and hit that gate every time that bulldog uh, runs by or comes by. But then one, all of a sudden, one day. Somebody didn't latch the gate and the gate comes flying wide open and he's standing right there in front of the bulldog. We might just be, uh, taking a look at that right now.
0: Thank you, Rougeon. Appreciate that. I went and looked at Elon's last text, or excuse me, tweet 21 hours ago. Oh, hi, L O L O. Uh, that's kind of interesting. Oh, Oh, hi, H I LOL.
1: <laughs> See, this it, is going to be entertaining. It's right? going
0: to be very entertaining and very interesting. And, um, And Twitter's world just got a lot more complicated. Some of the woke employees, uh, I would imagine some of the corporate agenda, you know, the corporate um, mindset, those that have been at Twitter for a long time and have become accustomed to censoring, you know, those on the right, disallowing, you know, opinions of those who don't fit into this kind of a corporate woke narrative See, and that's
1: part of the fun and entertaining
0: part to me no question watching about it. them answer to somebody who has now some power and influence well, in I mean, their world i asked my son this on um, saturday I, we were together my middle kid my youngest son were together saturday and i said he's kind of one of these that enjoys conversations like this i said okay um you've got a three-hour lunch no, You got a three-hour dinner tomorrow night you and five others who are the five you get to invent christ excluded take christ out of the equation Because he's half God or 100% God, 100% man. You can't figure that out. I can't figure that out. And all we do is talk about that all night. What five would you invite to a party of six for a three- or four-hour dinner tomorrow night? Elon Musk would absolutely be one. Um, And then he said, living or dead. I said, okay, let's do it living and then living or dead. And it was kind of an interesting um, conversation we bandied back and forth. I mean, I settled on Springsteen, Musk, Jefferson those would be the three that i would absolutely have there um the other two uh still kind of pondering on that but um i mean and musk is that kind of guy so interesting um c- kind of a riveting uh, just a riveting personality and and a really intense bright man and uh yeah we, we can't spend the rest of the day talking about twitter and what will happen but the board meeting at twitter will be fundamentally different. Uh, when they get together again than they previously had. now he does get compensated to be on the um, on the Twitter board that's a that's an added that, that's kind of a um, a carrot. he owns 2.9 yeah. $2. billion dollars worth of stock and I think the board seat at Twitter probably pays three or four hundred thousand dollars a year. Um, maybe he'll give that to some I would say religious charity but he's not a religious man. take a break back in just a couple of minutes. 843 6610937 is our number. A couple of callers, if I'm not mistaken.
1: I was just reading uh, Sean Spicer tweeted, mm-hmm. talking about Twitter and Musk said, Hey, Elon Musk, how about CNN next week?
0: <laughs> you get that a lot cheaper than you could. Um, yeah, well, they got real property. Twitter. Well, I mean, I would imagine Twitter has, um, well, they've got a headquarters, but mm-hmm. they operate in the realm of social media. Let's go to the phone. Pat in Florence. Good morning, Pat.
16: Good morning. How's everybody doing? Good morning. Um, I had a question about uh, D.W.'s call in this morning. I, I heard um, – I know Donald, but um, maybe I missed it, but was he asking why our Social Security benefits are taxed? Was that – Correct. Um, I i didn't think that South Carolina taxes our Social Security benefits. I thought they were – I'm looking. There's 37 states, it says, in South Carolina and North Carolina. Um, I'm reading right here. South Carolina does not tax Social Security benefits. Another site says that South Carolina is tax-friendly for toward retirees. Social Security income is not taxed. So I'm confused because I'm a, getting there. Also, I'm I'm just about at that age, about to draw them. What about the federal federal, federal tax. income tax? What
0: about the federal income tax?
16: Uh, I mean, the, what does, is asking. Social
0: Security called income and therefore qualifies for the federal income tax? Whatever that. Uh, rate would be whatever that effective rate would be
16: yes if you've got other income and it uh totals all up together i guess you pay um federal income tax on on all of that but, i guess um, what i'm
0: asking is, is if the average payment is 16.57 a month and that's kind of what i've read this morning is that pre-tax post-tax and is there a, is there a federal tax that applies to that um that benefit
16: Ooh, I
11: don't know if that's yeah. what I'm asking. Well, I'll dig in and
0: try to find out. Yeah, I'll see what I can find out for you. I mean, I don't get Social Security. Um, therefore, I'm not really – I mean, I get these statements every now and mm-hmm. then. I don't think they do it as often as yeah. they did. Thank you for the call. Appreciate it. But um, the point I've tried to make is a much bigger point, and that is that um, you pay – I mean, I don't know how long people work. Some work 30, 35, 40. Some people work 50 years. I mean, I've got friends who work 60 years and are still working. I mean, I got an, my father-in-law died at work. I mean, basically at 83 years old, he had a major medical issue at work. And I'm convinced if he were living today, you know where he'd be? He'd probably be at work. I mean, he enjoyed it. He was healthy until, his, you know, until he had his situation. But um, so he worked 66 years at one place i mean i you know i don't know how much money he made but what if he'd taken 6.2 percent of that salary for 66 years and the employer whomever that was matched it for 66 years and i think his um i mean let's say his um benefit is i mean i'm just using this i don't know this to be the case but let's say he's getting 1657 dollars a month I mean, if he had, um, if he had contributed 6.2 of his income for 66 years and made seven or eight percent as the S&P historically has, I mean, he would have. I mean, I'm just guessing, Rev. He'd have a couple of million dollars.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, compounding interest. I'm mean, uh, over that. Yeah, long I mean, time.
0: I'm, I'm at, yeah, for 66 years. I mean, we're talking about 30 years. I mean, the rule of 72. You know, how many years? And I mean, in other words, if 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 money. If, if your money earns 10%, it doubles about every 7.2 years. If your money earns 7.2% interest, it doubles every 10 years. That's kind of the rule of, of 72. So just say it doubles every 10 years and you work 66 years. I mean, imagine the, the last 30 years. You, most people work 30 or 35 years. He worked twice that long. I mean, I'll bet he'd have 3 or $4 million to leave to his kids. And son-in-law, um, <laughs> let's go to the
1: phone. Wow. Here is uh, Tony in Calhoun County, listening to WTQS. Well, he
0: always liked me. I mean, yeah. he always thought a lot oh. of me.
1: Yeah. All about you. <laughs> let's go to Tony. Hey, Tony. Hey,
6: good morning. Um, the Ukraine uh, back in '91 when the Soviet Union broke up. Um, who defined the borders? Who who wrote out the borders? Well, the Gorbachev. Americans had a lot to do with it. Well, Gorbachev took his little fat marker and his, and his, his little land map. He drew all the borders for the former Soviet states. Mm-hmm. So why would he leave Donetsk in the Luhansk regions inside the Ukraine? I mean, he had to do it for a reason. Did he do it? Because even at that time, you know, there were fascists within Ukraine and, you know, Russia had, Russians had moved into the Donets and re- moved into the, the Luhansk regions, and they were the predominant people there. Um, so why do you leave them in there? Why didn't he just carve it off at that time? Did he do it because he knew that the animosity between the fascists and the communists would lead to some future action, you know, that Putin's now using? I, I don't know. Um, the other thing, um, and I'm losing my train of thought here.
0: Well, I mean, but, but Tony, didn't Gorbachev, I mean, what Gorbachev was probably as amicable to American government as any former Soviet leader. Would you agree to that?
6: Yes. I think he did it because he needed the, the the financing from the West to save
0: his country. And that's what I'm saying. I mean, I would imagine he made concessions based on the eventual funding to help him get his country back on its feet. Is, is that a fair statement? Sure. Okay. And that, that's so kind anyway, of what I'm thinking I got, about. I I figured
6: out I figured out where I was going with that. Okay. Did you look up the Azov Battalion? I did. All right. Uh, the Azov Battalion has been fighting the DPR, the Donetsk People's Republic, which is Donetsk or Donbass, whichever way you want to word it, mm-hmm. um, ever since 2014, and maybe even earlier than that. But there are reports that um, the Azov Battalion had fired missiles into the Don into the Donbass or DPR. Right before the Rush or the Russians moved into the Ukraine, physically took their tanks from Yelnya into the so, Putin could legally or, or argue that they fired the first shots, not the, not the Russians. I think that's rather dubious because they've been firing into you know the DPR for for years. Um, the uh, Bukha, Bucha, whatever you, however you want to pronounce it, there's an independent reporter who was on the ground in Bukha um, he saw the bodies, he stated that the bodies were in various stages of decay, and it's springtime over there as the snow's just leaving. it's cold. there are no flies, there's no insects to eat up the, eat up your carcasses. Um, so it's kind of dubious as, as why there would be varying stages of decay. If the Russians just lined everybody up and shot them, they'd all be
0: in the same state of decay. So that's, there needs to be an investigation there. Um, but who do we trust to, to, to investigate, Tony? Heads. I mean, it's obvious you studied some of this. Who do we trust to investigate that?
6: I don't know. I really don't know. I don't know who I trust anymore. But um, he also reported that they were dead with white armbands. Well, white armbands are a signal of, of the, the Russians would wear or the Russian people living in the, in the Buka area. Um, that same Azov battalion has recently been you know, pri- primarily around Kharkiv or Kharkov, but he also reported that there was word that there were some parts of the uh, Azov Battalion in Bukha. So this is just a theory. I don't know. It should be investigated. Did these Azov Battalion people go to Buka kill the uh, Russian separatists that live in the area, and stage this whole thing? Because two days before um you know, this big atrocity that happened. And when people die, it's an atrocity, whoever's doing it. But the the mayor of the town made an announcement two days beforehand that, you know, they had regained control of their city, but he made no mention of all these dead bodies. Um, you'd think, you know, if he just got in, he would be talking about the atrocities and all the dead, but he never mentioned it. And I think that's rather curious and needs to be looked up. So anyway, that's
0: all I had. And what Tony's, but thank you, Tony. Appreciate the call. What Tony's arguing or 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 challenging is the um not not the authenticity of what we see we we know what we see i mean there are visuals out there that we see um is there a story behind that that is not being told to the public around the world yeah what are the
1: Uh, accurate who and why sure and
0: and i'll tell you but i've tried to i actually spent about 30 minutes yesterday um wikipedia and a couple of other articles that i found there was an article in the guardian about the Azov brigade or battalion um it's it's 2014 and some of the um ah, some of the motivations behind and um and that would be a likely suspect. I mean Tony may be onto something here. I certainly don't know. Let's go to the phone. Our next caller is Michael in Florence. Hey, Michael.
15: Hey, good morning, guys. Uh, just a couple of things. One, I, I recently read a um, read an article that Mitt Romney put out uh, a suggestion or a proposal that uh future generation social security income be uh be slashed, be reduced. Uh I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that. And two, uh have y'all thought about putting out I only get to listen um like to and from work and whatnot. And so I miss I tend to miss a lot of the program, but I'd love to to go back and listen to it. Have y'all put out podcasts or uh recordings of
0: the um of your show? I'll refer to you to, uh, to the Royal Rev of radio. He's the technical guru and expert, Rev. Well, that's just the perfect opportunity to say, yes,
1: we do. Uh, as a matter of fact, you can get an archive of the show. We started a few months ago, and uh, it's always available on the uh, Live95 website at live953.com. There's a podcast player near the bottom of the page. Also, it should be available anywhere that you get your normal podcasts. We send it to you know iTunes and Amazon and Google. And, all, and Spotify, I think all the normal podcast outlets there. So, And if you have a podcast outlet that you normally listen to that we're not on, let us know, and we'll try to get it added there as well. But certainly you can go right to the uh, live953.com website and pick it up right there.
0: Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks for asking. Yeah, <laughs> thank you for asking, because I know these guys have worked hard behind the scenes. I mean, I was real concerned when they decided to archive the show. 'Cause I told Rev, I said, What do you mean archive the show? He said, Yeah, we want to archive the show and people can go back and listen. I said, Yeah, but I mean if I say something stupid now I could deny it. <laughs> I never said I mean, that. <laughs> if there is no accounting of it, I could say, I didn't say that. I don't I would have never said that in a million years. Thank you for the call I appreciate uh, you hanging in there with us. And thank you for the um for the added um interest in in Wake Up Carolina. We're, we're trying to I mean you know, I've always argued and I, I'm I'm the guy least informed about radio. I mean, my, my understanding of radio is um I mean, ten years ago somebody asked me to sit behind this mic and start talking, and that's kind of what I've done for the past ten years. I don't understand the behind the scenes work that goes into what these guys do to make it all um come off. Uh, but but yeah, we've all agreed that radio has to evolve. You know, um I think the great talking about the Washington Post, the, the arrogance of the Washington Post is why it was sold for pennies on the dollar To the founder of Amazon, we we don't want to get caught in that. I mean, we understand. We believe that radio is a very viable medium of communication. I still believe that. I don't care about Facebook and Twitter. I mean, I understand that that it's a different world out there. I accept it's a different world, but I think radio still has a very viable place in the. in all the mediums of, of communicating one uh, with another. But we also believe in vertical integration. We believe in podcasts. We believe in, in um in the website. We believe in Twitter and Facebook. And I think the one place that I probably let the company and these guys down is not being as committed to Twitter and Facebook as I probably should have. And I'm going to tell you, I'll level with you. The reason I'm um, in decline on Facebook and Twitter is I think they mess with me. I mean, I think some oh, yeah. things I've said, uh, Ref calls it shadow banning. Uh, when we first started, we'd have five, four, 500 likes on about everything we did, and now we're lucky to get 100. And I, I just think they've, they, they've categorized us a certain way in the social media world, and we're not having our full effect. And it just frustrates me to know that you sit down and and, and kind of, you know, try to articulate yourself and, and what you believe in a way that you think resonates with the universe of people out there, and they don't get to read it they don't get to see it and that just kind of um, i guess in a weird way it's a protest of sorts uh, for me personally but but we believe that the radio needs a lot of other ingredients uh vertical integration is what business people refer to it as and we're trying to always constantly try to make the show more available and the content more appealing and attractive we'll take a break we'll be back in just a couple of minutes Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Couple of callers there. Let's go to the phone. Here's Matt in Florence. Good morning, Matt.
17: Hey guys, I'm just calling to kind of rebut. I think it's about two callers ago. Fellow so is calling. It sounds like he's making excuses for the Russians. Uh, you know, like if they just happen to mosey into the Ukraine and start getting killed by Ukrainians, and their bodies staged to. There's no grand elaborate conspiracy here. Vladimir Putin's going to do whatever he wants to because nobody's going to stop him. Uh, the world's soft and weak nowadays. Um, I don't understand why this guy's trying to find a conspiracy in it. They simply went into another country and they're killing anybody that gets in their way from stopping them from doing what they want to do. Um, it's not complex. Uh, we don't need to make excuses excuses for Russians being crap, you know? Um, the best thing for Vladimir Putin for everybody in the world is somebody to put him in a box, but we don't have those kind of bravery, uh, those sort of things happening anymore, so... He'll stay until he dies of old age, and somebody will take his place, and they'll just keep doing what they're doing until we get new leaders.
0: Thank you, Matt. Appreciate that, my man. Good to hear from Matt. Hadn't heard from Matt in a good a while. while. Yeah, he's been a longtime listener and participant in this feeble attempt to at radio break Let's go to the phone. Sam in Darlington is next. Hi, Sam.
4: Hi. Um, this uh, The last caller sort of, sort of reminds me of, again that we are we are in what – Seems like a, a sort of a propaganda or kind of a mass hysteria about uh, Russia, and uh, of course I don't know that for a fact. But it just it, it, in history you read about what what went on in World War One. Um, it was reported when when the when the British were trying to get us into World War One to help them out. Uh, it was reported on the news that German soldiers were, were uh, playing a game in Belgium. They would throw babies up in the air, Belgian babies up in the air, and then when they fell down, they'd stick the bayonet through them, you know, to see if they could catch them on the bayonet. And that was, that was like reported as news. And then later on, it turned out to be complete fabrication. It wasn't the truth to it at all. And uh, this thing about all these <clears throat> atrocities that that are being reported—I mean, they might be true, but uh, they might not. And um, I hope that if when they bring this to the UN, if they bring it up to the UN, that r- if Russia thinks they are innocent, <clears throat> that they will say, "Sure, uh, we we welcome uh, an independent inquiry, as long as the United States doesn't uh, doesn't." Appoint the people on the board for inquiry. We'd love to see uh, uh, independent investigation. Uh, and you know, I, I'm not saying that I know that they're innocent. I don't know that they might be guilty, but I don't know they're guilty either.
0: Thank you, Sam. Appreciate that. And that's, I mean, it's it, it's pretty odd because I line up with many of my leftist friends when it comes to what I believe and what I don't believe. Um, I, I just, you know, I don't. I certainly don't trust Russia. But but I don't trust Ukraine either. Uh, I it, mean, it's Eastern Europe. It's a part of the world that has not acclimated itself to Western values and Western culture. And I understand that um that just because you're not a Westerner uh, doesn't mean you're more suspect to me mis- mis- misleading or or intentionally propagandizing certain situations or issues. But but I think a lot of this is to generate a response. I mean, obviously Ukraine wants what they wants more. I mean. From the, from the beginning of this conflict or war, you know what? They wanted more Western involvement, right? I mean, the Western world has been hinged upon its belief in the sanctity of life, human rights, liberties, and freedoms. So anytime human atrocities are portrayed as an assault or, or insult to those liberties and freedoms and human rights and human, and human dignity, I mean, those are the linchpins of the Western world. So if you're trying to, propagandize. And once again, I'm like Sam, I don't know what's true or what's not. That's why I'm highly hesitant and unbelievably skeptical of further American involvement. If we're going to involve and engage, let's be damn sure that we understand with clarity where we are and what we're doing. And in that part of the world, I don't know how you get to clarity. Back in a minute.